You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, listeners. The year 2019 is drawing to a close. It's coming to an end. And we are, that means that we are almost three years into this podcast of ours. Which is crazy. Which is wonderful. And just like last year, we're going to wrap it up with an end of the year Q&A. All the last month or so, we've been taking questions from our listeners on the internet. And we're going to run through them here. Before we do, a, a thanks as always to anyone who submitted their questions. Yes. And a big thanks to everyone who's listened to the podcast. Absolutely. Three years is impressive by our standards. <laughs> uh, it's been super fun. We love getting to interact with people online. Any people who post on Twitter and Facebook and everything. People who took the time to write questions in for this. We really like interacting with our listeners. It's always exciting. Every time we get a message, it's always uh, you know, a little exciting just because people are out there, they're listening, and they're responding. Those of you who share with your friends, we really appreciate that. Those of you who've left us reviews on iTunes and such. Yes. And of course, especially a giant thanks to our patrons. All of you. As we like to remind people, this podcast supports itself. Yes. Thanks to our patrons, and we get to do cool stuff like go to Dragon Con and update, upgrade equipment and things like that. Yeah, and this year's been a great example of that, where we've gotten to do a few really cool trips. Yes, we have. And rest assured, we have some cool things in mind for 2020. Yep. There are some things in the making. There's plans to be to be happening for uh, cool things for patrons, cool mm-hmm. things for everybody that listens to the podcast. And we'll see, we'll see what comes. <laughs> so as always, let us know what you want to hear, what you think, what you'd like to see us do or hear us say. Yeah. But that's all the announcements for this one, because we have a lot to get through. People were very interactive with this Q&A. <laughs> so we're going to do the same thing we did last time. We have a, our whole list of questions. We've randomized the order. Yep. And we're just going to go back and forth. We're going to answer them as best we can. Some questions have been combined from multiple people. Others uh, we've cut down a little bit just to save on time. But if you sent us a question, you will hear your question answered. Last year we had, if I remember right, just shy of 60 questions. Yeah. This year we have just shy of 90 questions. So So right now, if you're listening to this, you know how long this episode is. (laughs) But we have no idea. Yep. So we're about (laughs) to find out. So, Will, let's start answering questions. Go ahead. Start us off. All right. Question one is from Dave Marshall. Oh, hey, Dave. Hey. Who asks, will you ever be as good as PaleoCast? I mean, see, I have to decide whether or not to be snarky. I know, right? Or serious. (laughs) PaleoCast is pretty cool, Dave. (laughs) You keep up the good work. (laughs) (laughs) Listeners, if you haven't listened to PaleoCast, go check it out. It's almost as good as the Common Descent podcast. I yeah, no. And only several years older. (laughs) (laughs) Our second question comes from Diane, who asks, what are some of your favorite fossil sites and why other than the gray fossil site? Ooh, good question. It is. Funnily enough, I so I I appreciate other fossil sites, but I've only ever had experience at Gray. So 
for me personally, that's the only one I can say I like it for these, you know, technical experience reasons. But if we're just going for ones I like, the Burgess Shale is probably one of the first ones that really caught my eye as far as like, I didn't know fossil sites could be like that. Yeah. You know, of that high detail, that amazing looking fossils. So I know that's probably a one that people would expect you to say, I don't have like a niche fossil site. Yeah. yeah. But that, that one really was one of the ones I remember kind of reframing the way I viewed fossil sites. That's a good answer. I'll throw in a personal one. The first fossil site I ever worked at was a site in South Dakota that I worked at with Russ Graham. And I spent lots of time digging in a little hole in the ground called Parker's Pit, which was quite a lot of fun. It was a heck of an introduction to paleontology. And I found a lot of snake jaws. Ooh, good stuff. All right, well, our next question is from Slam Jambert, the Slam Jam dude with the Slam Jam mood. Hello again, Slam Jambert. (laughs) (laughs) Who asks, if you could will a paleo documentary into existence, what would it be about? Oh, boy. A documentary. You know, as tempted as I am to just say snakes, I want to, you know, it'd be fun to pick something that doesn't get a ton of attention. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, so I could like dinosaurs are cool, but there's been a ton of documentaries. And, you know, in keeping with our pattern of growth over the last three years, I feel like I would call our friend Allie. Yeah. And do a, <laughs> a documentary about fossil plants. No, like, I, I think I'd a, have to back you up on that one. A fossil history of plants and the way that they've shaped global ecosystems and the actual terrain that we live on. To make the point that Allie always makes, that the plants aren't just the background. Yep. They're an active and super important part of the environment. No, I think I might have to back you up. My, my initial idea was um, transitions to actually more... Because you know, we've done a few transitional episodes, and one of the things we always harp on is this wasn't a straight line, even though that's how it's going to sound here, and it's always portrayed. Right. It was a documentary to actually explore the complexities of, you know early whales to whales or you know non-birds to birds something to really show that but i i think plant if i had to if i was presented these two plants would be my vote as well because that's the more crucial that's the one that needs it the most uh while you're talking the other idea that i just had be real cool to have a a documentary about how we study climate in the past and what (laughs) we've learned about climate and what we understand about why climate changes and what happens when it does yeah that seems topical yeah that would be that's also good (laughs) That's a good question. Our next question is from Stephanie, who asks, this one's a, an even more personal question. What is your dating slash married life like? <laughs> How do you find the time while doing the podcast, personal research, and paleontology work? Good question. Uh, for the first part of your question, a single. Is, yeah. yeah that's, that's <laughs> as a, of this recording. Yeah, as of this recording. Living that bachelor life. <laughs> Uh, but as for the rest of your question, there are some things we've had to learn tips and tricks wise for like working the podcast into the rest of the life. Uh, you know, we, we both work day jobs. Mm-hmm. So the podcast is in, you know, technically off time. It's, it's our downtime that we've now made into our own job time. Uh, but working around it, the, one of the biggest things we've had to do is, make sure we stay on schedule. Uh, that was kind of our biggest rule when we first started is we knew if we set a schedule for like due dates, mm-hmm. uh, that would keep us honest and that we could never ever break a 
episode deadline or, you know, fall behind on that. And to expand the question out to just social life in general, there have definitely been times over the course of the podcast where we have gotten overwhelmed, Mm -hmm. where we have had uh, individually or together our social life kind of get shoved to the side. Mm -hmm. There are weeks. The week we are recording this right now is one of them. Yeah, it's (laughs) a busy before holidays week. Very, it's been a ton of work this week. Lots of recording, lots of stuff to do. We had to push off watching The Mandalorian this week. Yeah. Made now it they, to, made now it they to, came out early, so that's also on the... That's true. Yeah. We still would have had to push it off. <laughs> but I, I think we've been finding that balance of where it's important to say, no, this day we are going to make sure mm-hmm. there's nothing. For example, tonight, not tonight as recording, last night, in fact, mm-hmm. as of recording... Uh, that their new Star Wars movie's coming out. Yeah. Get stuff done, because we're going to hang out and go yep. to the movies. Yeah. And it, it becomes very important to balance out your schedule. And it's something we're still working on. You know, there are aspects of it we're still mastering. Uh, it, I, I know for me, it was it has been helpful to be making this podcast with a best friend. So that when I did have times, especially down in Tampa, where people were like, you want to hang out? No again. Right. (laughs) I know you, I said that the last every time you've asked, but no again, because I've got stuff to do so that it doesn't feel like I'm ignoring all friends. At least I'm getting some friend time, even if we're doing podcast. Yes. So it, that's, that's been a big helping aspect of it, but we're still learning. We're we're still mastering that skill. Ask us again next year. Yes. (laughs) All right, so the next question we have is actually a couple of questions uh, that Rebecca and Toad both posed. (laughs) Rebecca said, if time travel would be possible and you had to choose one period of time you could visit, which would it be? And Toad said, a time machine has been created. Which point in history would you most want to go back to and study and why? Yes, good question. I always default to the late Cretaceous. It's hard not to. Because... It's got, as far as I can figure, the greatest combination of the coolest stuff. Yes. Right. Late Cretaceous gives me all the cool, diverse feathered dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. You get your early birds. It's got all the best dromaeosaurs. Yep. It's got mosasaurs. It's got plesiosaurs. There's a bunch of cool crocs. Yep. Like, it, yeah, it's just a really cool... It's got pterosaurs, the largest pterosaurs. Yeah. Well, it's got a lot of the the biggest, you know, it's got a lot it's of the... biggest sort. It's got the titanosaurs. Yeah. Also, like, the big herding, di- like, dinosaurs at their herbivorous peak. Well, yeah, it's, it's, uh, Lake Cretaceous gets you a bunch of cool animals, but it also gets dinosaurs at their apex of, like, this is when they were extremely diverse, huge size-wise and, you know, numbers-wise, but also, like, very, very weird. Like, lots of weird individuals, lots of very specialized, like, they'd had the most amount of time dinosaurs had had. Yeah. To get weird and specialized and cool. And so it's hard not to vote for that. Also a bunch of limbed sea snakes. Yeah. Which would be real cool to see. Yeah. So Lake Cretaceous is, is often when I... Yeah, that's where I'm going to end up going. It's Visit the Western Interior Seaway. So next time someone asks and eliminate that and make us think of something else. Ooh, oh boy. <laughs> All right, well, you'll have to wait till next yep. year. <laughs> Our next question is from Beth, who asks us... 
to, to share our reflections on the importance and significance of holotypes. Oh, okay. So we should remind people that a holotype is the reference specimen of a new species. Yeah, this is the specimen where the descriptors f- to define that species, this is the specimen that you should use to identify those features. Yes. Holotypes are an interesting concept because if you have a a species that is well represented, it's not that they become uh, uh, pointless, but if you have enough specimens, you end up having so many specimens that could be as good as the holotype that you don't hear about as often. But then there are lots of cases where really you have this one nice specimen and that's why it's so important. Yeah. I'd say one of the biggest importances of holotypes is that it it promotes and enforces consistency. Yeah. That though there may be, we may find a better specimen down the line, for now, this is the one we have that shows the features the best. So make sure you're coming to this best example and not just an example. Right. Well, it's also, a, it, it preserves a bit of history. It does. And it's one of the things that if you go into a museum's collections room, you know, if you come to Gray, you come to the Gray Fossil Site and you talk to April, our collections manager, you hear a lot about records and data and, you know, the record of what was done in the prep lab and what was done in the field. It's not just about what is this fossil and where did it come from? It's what was done to it and who worked on it and what were their original identifications mm-hmm. and what happened after that. And a holotype is always, even if it's just a single tooth. Yeah. Right. Uh, the gray fossil site, the panda, the holotype is a tooth. Yep. Even though now we have full skeletons. Mm-hmm. But it's this historical sample that lets you track how did we come to our understanding that we have today. Yes. Well, it's how was the identification made makes a lot more sense when you see what it was made on. Yes. You know, so it it's important uh, and it, it, it they definitely can get confusing at times, like the example we talked about with the um, Hyracotherium. Yes. Where the holotype <laughs> Your name's changed. got re-identified and that <laughs> screwed up everything else. So it can get weird sometimes. But yeah, they're pretty important. Beth also asked, if is it correct that the AM&H, the American Museum of Natural History in New York, sold T-Rex to the Carnegie for protection during World War II? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. Yeah, I hadn't. I haven't read that, but it would not. There have definitely been scares about holotypes. Yes. Especially during wars. Yes. And we discussed in episode 42 that the original Spinosaurus material was destroyed in Germany in World War II. So, yeah. There's historical presence to be concerned. Next question by Cody. Uh, Cody says, I'm a software engineer, but I'd love to contribute to the paleontology community somehow. Any suggestions? My main skills are in mobile app development. As we discussed before, we talked about this a whole bunch in our last Q&A, how people can get involved in all sorts of different ways. Volunteer at a museum, volunteer at fossil sites, talk to paleontologists at a local university and such stuff like that. But if you're a software person, we are at the Gray site right now working with the digital media folks at ETSU on doing apps. In fact, yes. just a couple of weeks ago, the digital media people came in with their brand new augmented reality app that they loaded on a tablet for us that you can hold it up to some of the posters in the museum and it'll pop up our 3D scans of some of our fossils. Yeah. 
So mobile apps stuff is getting used a lot now for more and more for communication and education. Yeah, outreach. Uh, there's the um, it was at NAPC. One of the talks was the traveling museum that yes. they had, and they use those kind of apps very heavily because you can't fit an entire skeleton, but you can put a 3D augmented model inside the truck. Yes, it expands your 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 exhibit space yes. infinitely. And I remember, we might even have mentioned this in episode 17 uh, for SVP, that one year at SVP, our friend Gabe Santos had, was showing off an app that you'd hold up your phone to a exhibit, like a, a description or an exhibit. He was using it on his poster at the conference, and it would translate the words. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where you'd bring it up, and it was like, yes, on the poster it's in English, but here we've created it in Spanish. And then it has diagrams and stuff that go with it. So if you want to contribute, boy, education is a great avenue to go on. Yeah, a, a public outreach and public communication is really where those things are most useful. Our next question comes from Stephen Ray Morris of the See Jurassic Right podcast. That's a little bit of in this podcast advertising. <laughs> <laughs> Very clever. Who asks, I believe you touched on it here or there, but what are your thoughts on the evolution of natural history museums? And would you ever consider doing an episode on them as a concept or individual institutions slash which ones are your favorites? Uh, yes. That's a great idea. <laughs> Absolutely. That'd be so cool to discuss. Uh, the evolution of public science institutes is a fascinating topic. Yes. Uh, that was a very common thing to discuss at the aquarium because zoos and aquariums used to be horrific. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they were. There is a historical precedent to be horrified by them, and nowadays many are not. Museums do have a little bit of that. Like, there are dark histories, and there are, you know, rightly so outdated practices for how history, you know, how museums and uh, other institutes used to handle presenting science. Oh, yeah. You know, It'd be fascinating to talk about. If you're interested in learning about that, there is a blog called Extinct Monsters, which is all about the history of art and museum displays and such. So while waiting for people to make suggestions for us, <laughs> check that out. It's a lot of that kind of information. Next, we have Anthony, who says, What if avian dinosaurs went extinct at the end of the KPG mass extinction alongside non-avian dinosaurs? What creatures do you think would take their place going into the Cenozoic? That is a fascinating question. So if we yeah. didn't have birds. Yes, if all dinosaurs, you know, flying and otherwise, died out. Oh, man. Well, uh, on the, I, I guess we're still assuming that pterosaurs go extinct. Yeah. Which would leave us in this fascinating place after the end Cretaceous where there are no flying vertebrates. Yep. Because bats don't show up for another 15 million years yes. or so after that. So I guess it would be bats. I, it makes me wonder if they would have shown up earlier or if there would have been more mammal forays into flying. You know, if we would have seen multiple groups try it out right, right. earlier because there wasn't competition. Yeah. Or I wonder if, well, I was going to say, I wonder if another group of reptiles might yeah. have beat them to it. But I, they, all you had was lizards crocs and turtles none of whom were particularly close to it although That's, lizards could have done it i feel like lizards could have done it but then there's also and now this is who knows and you know these sort of hypotheticals are so many but i feel like if lizards would have done it then we also would have seen something in the last 65 million years of a lizard 
getting much closer than they have. Unless it's because there's... Yeah. I mean, there are gliding lizards. There are. Which, that's where we think bats came from. I'm even more interested in the question of because uh, of what would have taken their place as the giant predators yes. of the early Paleocene. Because as we've discussed, birds became the big terrestrial predators for a little while in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Would there have been something else that took over? We have gotten more of those terrestrial crocs yep. or something. Terrestrial crocs, the big snakes and the big lizards, you know, the varanids. Yeah. Uh, could have very easily become the active land predator chasing stuff down. You know, Anthony, I think you have led us into a scenario that sounds better. It <laughs> sounds better than what we got. I'm, I'm game for it. I mean, because just think we would have been able to have diurnal bats much more commonly. Yeah. And diurnal bats are the big ones. Well, and I assume bats would have been more diverse. They would have been diverse. We would have absolutely have gotten massive bats. I would think so. Like... Whew, that's super cool. Just oh, man. giant bulldog bats scooping small animals yep. from the forest floor. <laughs> Our next question is from Jonathan, who asks, are there any confirmed or at least highly likely examples in the fossil record of one species directly transitioning into another? Ooh, I mean, absolutely. There are situations where that sure does seem to be the case, or it is... um cautiously posited that this seems to have to be a direct descendant of this species right we talked about this in episode 18 with the human evolution record that if you have a complete enough record you can end up with a case where what you've started with grades gradually into what you end up with and the start and end points look like new species but there's no actual distinction yeah like early Homo erectus and late Homo erectus are a million years apart. And so there becomes this question of, are those the same species? And does that lead directly into Homo sapiens? And we talked about how the line between Australopithecus and Homo is kind of blurry because it's so complete. Yep. In general, if you only have a couple of fossils, you can't say no. if it's everything's a transition. Yeah, it's it's the usually the kind of uh, assumption is... This is definitely a more ancestral form, and this is definitely a, you know, descendant of something that was probably similar right. to that ancestral. Maybe this one, maybe something else. Uh, the horses, a lot of the sources I was looking up with the horses very confidently noted a few of them as coming directly from a previous known species. Right. Because horse fossil records are very complete. So yeah, good stuff. Eddie asks, has there been any update on the SVP lawsuit on the presidential administration? Ooh, so we talked about this, oh boy, probably about a year ago now. So for those who don't remember or haven't heard, there was a move by the current United States presidential administration to shrink, uh, most notably, Bears Ears and Grand Staircase, uh, Escalante National Monuments, here in the United States, which created a big uproar from a lot of people because national monuments, but particularly from paleontologists because those are big deal fossil localities. Yes. Lots of really important fossil information has come out of there and there's way more to be explored. And so there was this sort of scientific and conservational minded 
objection to it. Yes. And so, yeah, the SVP, the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology, episode 17, started a joint lawsuit against the administration saying, no, the way you're going about this is not legally correct and we want to protect these resources. As far as I know, it's just continuing. Yes. I don't think that there's, I haven't heard of any like major new developments. My impression of these things is that what tends to happen is they say, we're starting a lawsuit and then that takes a number of years. And then the lawsuit gr- grudgingly moves forward. Right. And then you fight lawyers and legal stuff and you make your way through yeah so as far as i know it's still in the works i don't know if anything major has come of it yet but keep your eyes open the place to check is um the svp website is vertpaleo.org yeah so i checked there i didn't see any updates but keep your eyes on there and that's that'll be where you see the news i'm sure they'll make a announcement you know an official update when they have pertinent information i would think so our next question comes from q who very handily included pronunciation thank you q which is very appreciated who says did you guys feel any weird anxiety as undergrads or even when applying before applying to colleges in an oh no i'm an amateur i feel so alienated i'm so out of my depth i should have done something easier way (laughs) and if you did was there any way you were able to get over it for context q explains As a senior high school student looking to be studying paleontology next year in university, this fear is killing me. Ah! (laughs) Which is a very uh, uh, relatable sentiment. Absolutely. Oh my goodness, yes. Uh, The the imposter syndrome is one of the most common (laughs) afflictions. Oh, it's real. In academia. Uh, That's the whole concept of feeling like you don't belong. For whatever reason that you don't belong at the, the... you know, conference, the class, the school, the... Right. That I, so, but before long, they're going to realize... Yes, they're going to see through the mass. Right. I Somehow I cheated to get here, and I don't know what I'm doing. And the truth is, base, I, in my experience, all of my friends, everyone, I've, everyone goes through it. Oh, uh, yeah. Because when you come in, you know, you, you have yet to get the experience that some people, you know, some of the other people there have. But the truth is, most of the other people you will be starting with are also feeling the same way. And even if they look like they're doing fine, it's because they're not behind closed doors while you're looking (laughs) at them. Like, yeah. So it's, you know, the biggest thing that I found that helped mitigate that is just taking it easy on yourself and realize it's going to take time. Like, that's really the only cure is (laughs) taking time and not expecting you you know expecting yourself to match the professors yeah it's gonna be real easy when you get in because q says you know i i'm out of my depth i feel like an amateur well yeah you are an amateur and you are out of your depth. you know you're in a professional environment and you're not yet a professional don't it's like what people say on it's very tempting to compare yourself directly to the most successful person in the room Mm -hmm. well don't do that yes that's unfair to you. So I would say, yeah, like Will said, take it easy on yourself and be aware of how you're feeling and talk about it. Yeah. Ask people. Talk to your friends because there's a good chance they're feeling the way you are. And if you start to get overwhelmed by things, you know, talk to friends, talk to family. If you're at a university, they offer counseling. Yes. And I I want to stress that 
if you're feeling stressed out and you're feeling uncomfortable and you're feeling unhealthy, even if it's emotional, mental distress. Even if it feels like it's not something critical. That is one of the hardest things for students to deal with. In part because it's one of the hardest things for students to own up to. I did it. I went to counseling in both undergrad and during grad school. I went in undergrad and I probably should have gone <laughs> in grad school as well. <laughs> the the best example I can give for kind of the feeling of going from this, this, this overwhelmed state to what it will be like later is if, and if you haven't, go watch it because it's, it's a classic, uh, Karate Kid of... <laughs> You won't notice how smoothly and quickly you go from an amateur to not an amateur until something happens. The first research presentation I went to was one of the most uh, (laughs) disconcerting things I ever did because (laughs) the entire time sitting through it and after, I was confused. I didn't know what they were talking about. I didn't know what the questions people were asking meant i didn't know why they were asking that question according to what they just like i it feels like you're all just saying random things and then you're all cool with the random thing the person just said i used to get super self-conscious about not having questions to ask after presentations and then i was in school for my you know first year and then there was another bout of thesis defenses with research presentations and i sat down and i had a question a legitimate question because i understood (laughs) i didn't i don't know when that happened somewhere in that year it did so take it easy on yourself it is happening you are you are moving forward and don't forget that there are people and i speak because i know them yes with phds yes who feel this way yes we both still feel this way sometimes oh absolutely like, like when we went to napc i was like all right i'm surrounded by actual yeah. professionals <laughs> you're letting <laughs> us talk here are, really we, we were a little surprised <laughs> yeah <laughs> yep <laughs> so you're gonna be fine if you're in the place you want to be keep going talk yes. to people don't be too hard on yourself we believe in you absolutely <laughs> next question is by nemo who says how much math is involved in paleontology? Good question. That's actually a really good question. There is going to be probably a bunch of math involved in getting to paleontology. Yes. If you're pursuing it in a university college route, uh, it's going to be in the sciences. So you're going to have to take math. I had to take calculus and I had to do chemistry and physics. Yep. But once you're actually in paleontology, it really depends on what you end up doing. It's yeah, you have to kind of (laughs) choose There are some parts of paleontology that really, you know, if you're just doing simple anatomical descriptions or if you are, I should say simple, but, you know, if you're doing straightforward anatomical descriptions, there are things like if you do what we do. Yeah. You know, we've gone more the education route. I never do math. Nope. And (laughs) it's it's real easy. The research I did for my thesis, because it was all skull imaging, not, you know, doing ratios. And the computer did all the math. Yeah, same here. Yeah. I just had to describe things. Mm-hmm. Now, there are other parts. There are, I mean, you could go into biomechanics. Yeah. And now you're doing physics. There's a lot of statistics used these days. There is even, you know, when you're doing relationships, phylogeny is determining what's related to what. That gets into statistics. And so it's helpful to know statistical methods. So it really depends on what. I'll put it this way. It is possible to mostly avoid complicated math and still be a paleontologist. 
paleontology is one of those fields where you can, depending on what you're choosing to pursue, bring as little or as much math into it as you want. <laughs> like, you can make paleontology a mathematical study and still be a legitimate paleontology or almost no math at all and still be a legitimate study. So, yeah, lots of range. And I would also like to add, I know that a lot of people get very intimidated by math. Math has this stigma in our in our global society. But I would also posit for anyone out there who's very worried about math, if you can do the science, if you can learn the biology and you can learn the geology, even if it was something that seemed kind of intimidating at mm -hmm. first, you might give math a try. Yes. You might find that you can do it more easily than you think. It's, math is not some magic thing that some people can do and some people can't. That's not how brains work. <laughs> that's not how it works. It may, more likely than not, the way it was presented to you earlier on was maybe not the best way for you to learn it. Yes, that and is absolutely true for a lot of people. That's the, that's the experience I've had most often with people who hate math and then describe what their classes were like. Okay, well, yeah, no wonder. I'd hate math <laughs> if I had that class. So you you will be good. You got this. We believe in you. Our next question, we have two, another pair of questions that we're going to answer separately, but back to back, because they are both about fossil names. Okay. Samantha asks, what are some of your favorite or silliest names for extinct creatures? And then actually, you know, we'll, we'll do these together because we can do these uh, uh, at the same time. Yes. The other question is from someone who identified themselves as zoologist and patron. <laughs> what is the coolest sounding prehistoric animal name for a species that perhaps is not that cool? <laughs> I like both. Of so favorite, silliest, and coolest for something that maybe isn't that cool. Good questions. <laughs> All right. So coolest but not that cool uh, that first comes to mind for me is Beelzebufo. Absolutely. Yes. Beelzebufo, which... Incidentally, also happens to be my favorite name for a prehistoric creature that of all time. That one's hard to beat. <laughs> we talked about Beelzebufo in episode 40 because it's from Madagascar. Yes. Uh, but the devil toad. My favorite. And I know, once again, this is this is a recent one, so it's fresh on my brain. I don't I don't store as many scientific names as uh, some others, but Zul Cruivastator. Oh, yeah. It, oh, that's a <laughs> that's a really... It, the name sounds cool, and what it means is even better. Yeah. So that's that... The that's, Destroyer of Shins. The Destroyer of Shins. For an ankylosaur, that's that's pretty fantastic. I actually wrote an article for Earth Touch News a, couple, a few years ago that was my favorite prehistoric names. Nice. And it was ostensibly a list of 10 but i totally cheated and got a bajillion names in there <laughs> so you can look that up it was it was the prehistoric names put in earth touch news prehistoric names you'll find it but i listed things like beelzebufo mm -hmm. and i also listed the uh there is a trilobite i like this story there is a trilobite that was discovered a number of years ago i, I think a couple of decades ago actually in china and the person who named it, whose name escapes me right now, named the genus and species, both new, the genus was Han after the region of China. Yep. And then, as they described in the paper, because it's the only species in the genus... All by itself. The species name was Solo. Yeah. <laughs> Logically. So they named it 
Han Solo. Which is funny to me because sometimes people justify, they're like, oh, this is why we did it. But then there was also, um, oh, I can't remember this person's name either. The person that named Ninjemis. Ninjemis. Which is a fossil turtle. Ninjemis means turtle. Mm-hmm. Ninjemis is Ninja Turtle. And right there in the paper, he says, named after that fearsome foursome. Yes. Because <laughs> you're allowed to name it after other people. You just do whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think those. And, and Han Solo is a great name for something that's not particularly Han Solo-y. Because mm-hmm. a trilobite. Trilobites are cool. But they're no Han Solo. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Next question we have is from Diver Dylan, who says, in your opinion, what is the best place for a young child, say 7 to 11 years old, to explore reputable information and build their interest in paleontology? This is an excellent question. That's a good one. Uh, good enough that what I did was I went to Facebook, <laughs> where I am part of a paleontology education group, and I threw the question up there. Because I wanted to, all right, what, what is everyone going to say? And here are some of the answers I got. So a lot of people recommended books. Books are, there's a lot of cool books for kids, uh, educational books. There's also books like Dinotopia, which are real fun for getting kids excited about dinosaurs and stuff. A couple people recommended public libraries, which are great resources for educational material. Obviously museums. Mm -hmm. If you have a museum nearby... Or a national park. Sometimes they'll have paleontology-related programs. If you have a local fossil club, also a lot of places, especially if there's a university around or something, might have a local fossil club you can join. Or if you're in an area with uh, popular fossil hunting sites. Yep. Or if you can just find a paleontologist. Like if you're at a university or something, see if there's a paleontologist and ask them. Yeah. They might be able to point you in the right direction to something local or answer questions for you yourself. I don't know if they'll like do your birthday party or something, but (laughs) they might be able to help. (laughs) And then there are also a bunch of great online resources. So a few that were listed in in the, the recommendations that I got, one is the fossil project, which is essentially an online paleo community. So people can ask questions, people can send in pictures of fossils they found to get identified, people can look for assistance with, you know, if they're trying to do paleontology type stuff. A bunch of our friends are involved in that, so Gabe Santos is Mm -hmm. involved in that. Jen Bauer of uh, Time Scavengers, who actually has not been on the podcast. Adrian's been on the podcast. Right, yeah, true. (laughs) We'll get Jen sometime. So look up the Fossil Project, great resource. UCMP Berkeley. UCMP has an excellent website that goes through basic, easily digestible info on fossils and evolution and general earth history. And then there's the HHMI, which off the top of my head, I don't remember what that stands for. But HHMI produces a lot of really cool uh, uh, online materials, videos and cool stuff like that, that go over concepts like evolutionary transitions and things like that so there's all sorts of really cool websites also uh people we know on youtube there's eons yeah and there's scishow now i should disclaimer Mm -hmm. i write for scishow yes so you know it's good uh (laughs) (laughs) but uh those are both through pbs well eons is through pbs scishow i don't think is pbs related 
it's through it's all through complexly it's all the stuff that hank green and friends have put together but those are great reference resources for kids to look into because it's easily digestible they're short videos so all of those <laughs> rewind the, the podcast and listen to that again uh the fossil project ucmp hhmi pbs uh, all right eons and scishow pbs in general has a lot of cool stuff and then yeah books libraries universities fossil clubs all great places yes good question i hope that that is very helpful <laughs> Our next question comes from Aaron. Now, Aaron made a suggestion for a, a special type of episode. Okay. Which uh, uh, it described here as a SmackDown episode, Cenozoic versus Mesozoic. Ooh. Now, we don't have time right now to do an episode no. on it. But we can talk about <laughs> what what might a Cenozoic versus Mesozoic SmackDown entail. So Aaron suggests... That we could potentially pick some animals, uh, strengths and weaknesses, uh, uh, things like that to sort of build up our case. Yeah, interesting. Now, it's a shame I'm asking Will this question, because <laughs> I, I think that means you get first choice. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, the because the first, when you say SmackDown, the first thing that comes to mind is... Epic rap battles. The, the, yeah, like, like uh, the... the um, a prehistoric fight club that they did you know oh yeah that sort of stuff the jurassic fight club. jurassic fight club Ugh. uh yeah yeah one well, and the issue <laughs> with that is the mesozoic has more players to pull from well the mesozoic is like three times longer than the cenozoic it's, it's way longer <laughs> and no one in the cenozoic is in the right weight class <laughs> well like yeah there are certain things in the mesozoic that are just unfair yeah like there's a there's a there's a, basically they don't include all the weight classes at least <laughs> like right you get through like the top <laughs> the bottom three and then there are two more weight classes that the mesozoic gets into that the cenozoic just doesn't now i will say assuming that if will gets the first choice he picks mesozoic <laughs> if i take if i get cenozoic i'm gonna go whole hog on you might have the largest animals of all time <laughs> on land, and you might have all the cool reptiles, but I in the Cenozoic get the literal world destroyers. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to go down, but are taking you down with us. <laughs> oh, it's funny because it's sad. I feel like it would have to be uh, more like all around functioning. You know, if we were to take Smilodon and Deinonychus, you know, more equivalent members not so much who would beat the other one up but as predators which one do we think would typically outperform or something like Ooh, that interesting you know? i got the impression that it was about coolness coolness just arguing over which one is yeah which is an angle we could go which is looking real bad for the cenozoic i i mean i sorry mammals yep <laughs> but i like it listeners what do you think yeah who are your top contenders for the cenozoic mesozoic smackdown that's a fun idea. Yeah. Next, we have uh, Diana, who says, In our world, humans are just another kind of animal. In the Poka world, are humans just another kind of Pokemon? Oh, boy. See, this is what we get for doing a Pokemon. Yep. Um, Diana, you have hit on an extensive discussion. Are humans just another kind of Pokemon? Well, so here's the thing, uh, if I may, for a second. There's not really a good consistent definition in the in in the game's and various media for Pokemon of what a Pokemon is. Yeah, like, what actually does that entail? 
because there are like most Pokemon are animals, but also there are plants and yep. also there is at least one that's supposedly a virus. Yeah. But then there's also references to other non-Pokemon animals and plants. Yeah. Like there's just trees. And in the Pokedex, there's all sorts of references to just generic bugs or sometimes specific things like Indian elephants. Yes. Raichu has a, a, a Pokedex entry that says it could take down an Indian elephant. Okay. And then there's also a virus in the game, the Pokerus, which is not considered a Pokemon, even though Deoxys is considered a Pokemon, despite having started as a virus. So, like, phylogenetically, there doesn't seem to be a consistency unless Pokemon are their own family tree that is totally separate from all those other things, and it's just sort of convergent. And then also there's, like, potentially extraterrestrial Pokemon. Yeah. And then there are trans-dimensional Pokemon. <laughs> so... I feel like the real deciding factor to this question is would a human fit into a Pokeball? Well, you I, know... I feel like that that's the one <laughs> consistent thing Pokemon have is they go in, they can go into Pokeballs and we don't see anything else do that except for Pokemon. I will say uh, other things. Humans don't get Pokedex entries. <laughs> True. And when humans get attacked by Pokemon, it does not seem to have a type advantage. Interesting. Like, in the anime, as loath as I am to use the anime <laughs> as examples for stuff, because the anime. But, like, people get attacked by Pokemon all the time. Never appears to be super effective. In the games, people will get attacked by things. There's no mention of super effectiveness. So are humans just another kind of Pokemon? I answer your question with another question. What in the world is a Pokemon? Yes. <laughs> I still, I stand by mine. Someone needs to put Ash in a Pokeball. And if it works, we're Pokemon. I, I'm, I'm on board. <laughs> this calls for experimentation. Our next question comes from Eric. And Eric, so Eric says he doesn't like when sexual selection is used as a catch-all explanation for weird ancient features. This is something we've talked about on the podcast. He asks, would it be possible to rebrand that aspect of paleontology, that sort of interpreting behaviors, sexual uh, selection behaviors, as cultural paleontology, similar to the designation between sociocultural anthropology versus physical anthropology? And it might, that, that it seems mainly semantic, but it might influence how people consider the highly subjective nature of the topic. Interesting. First off, you are not alone in being annoyed or at least wishing that things were a little more cautious about slapping sexual selection onto all features. Right. Uh, it's an easy thing to do. The reason it's easy is because if you can't explain something right away, well, a lot of weird features are usually connected to sexual selection. But also, there are many features that, though they have a obvious purpose, are also still somewhat connected. Right. Because... If you're an animal that mates, sexual selection is there somewhere. Like, it's it's playing a role somewhere, somehow, and it often is doing it on more than one front, not just the antlers, also your pheromones or etc. Right, right. So, it's easy for it to be present, even if it's not the main purpose of a thing. But as far as rebranding it, I'd say no, 
because at least in my understanding culture is not a instinctual but a passed on behavior cultural is something that we as a species have learned or designed you know a behavior we have come up with and i am teaching it to my young are not born knowing to do it it's not in their dna and so though this is studying behavior it is not studying passed on or, or um taught behavior it is not a social construct it is a biological construct that affects their social behavior yeah i would agree i think that and it uh, really it's behavioral paleontology yes i think that cultural is not quite the right term for it i would i would say yeah no that's so should people maybe uh explain better or, or you know go a little deeper when they apply sexual selection as an answer to something yeah probably but i i still think that that is currently the correct course of describing and discussing those weird features Next question we have is from Ben, who says, What kinds of jobs have you guys had outside of the sciences? Uh, summer jobs, service industry, retail, etc. I worked as a camp counselor mm -hmm. when I was in high school, and then a little bit of college, and I was good at it. <laughs> and for a little while, while I was doing freelancing, I worked at a grocery store. I worked in the dairy aisle. I stocked shelves, and I hated it <laughs> i hated it so much and i was like i met people who loved it who were like this is great yeah i love just moving stuff from one place to another it's simple it's repetitive it keeps them occupied i was so bored Whew, not a fan i my first job ever was tossing pizzas cool. uh hand tossing you know, up in the air pizza style at uh papa john's and then i worked at an arcade for the next few years while i went through college and both of those were not my passions, but I enjoyed them because I got to have free pizza and I got free video games. Like nice. I could, we, <laughs> if we came into the arcade, they just gave us a card for an hour that we could go play arcade games. And I have the high scores on all of the shooter arcades. Nice. <laughs> Good question. Eddie asks, will you be attending the MPC at the Gray Fossil Site this spring? I assume... That the MPC is referring to AMP. Yes. The, uh, again, I don't remember, but it's material. It's Materials and Methods of Paleontology Conference. Uh, we will probably be involved with it. Yes, I will definitely be involved. <laughs> We're gonna... You are on, on the track I, to be I am involved. on deck. I, I have a couple of things that I'm likely going to be helping with. And so we, we will be attending in the fact that we will be there but we will be helping make it happen yeah i might be leading partially leading a workshop Ooh, so we'll see nice <laughs> <laughs> all right sky asks uh says inspired by primeval the show, the show could you speculate what could have happened to the world and human evolution if australopithecus were to have been wiped out an interesting question well considering that australopithecus is considered to be the direct ancestor of our own genus if australopithecus were wiped out before homo evolved out of it then i suppose we would not have happened yeah that would be homo sapiens wouldn't have happened at least as we are right if australopithecus were to be wiped out after homo had already shown up i assume things would have been fairly similar yeah 
uh, maybe earlier yeah. if our competition was gone. But I don't think there were other... Australopithecus seems to have been the main uh, uh, pop, the, uh, common hominid hominin at that time. There are some other genera. There have been some other genera that were have been rebranded as Australopithecus. So it could be that there was a cousin of Australopithecus that may have then evolved along a similar line. But I think it's pretty safe to say if we got rid of Australopithecus, you would not have had humans. And then, of course, it gets into that question of, is it inevitable that a primate of one branch or another would have become like humans? Exactly. Which is an impossible question to answer because our sample size is one. (laughs) Yeah. It's my my gut in my gut reaction would be, is it possible and even maybe likely that another ape would give rise to a a, a you know hyper intelligent to be as egotistical Naturally. as we can uh, to an awesome <laughs> to, to 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 a to a destroyer grotesquely <laughs> big brain a lineage uh yes I think that is I don't think there's any reason that we would say that wouldn't happen right except for that it, it's only happened once so yeah. it were we a fluke or were we a thing that was going to happen and just competition kept it to one right eh. who's to say good question though this next question comes from geo jim now we have reworded this question and you'll see why <laughs> brontosaurus tyrannosaurus velociraptor Marry one, kill one, and we're going to say, spend a lovely evening <laughs> with one. Out of those three. Uh, <laughs> I know my answers. So I think my answer would be, uh, as sad as it is, kill Velociraptor. Because if I'm going to have the ability to kill one of them, <laughs> it's Velociraptor. Okay. I can choke that one out. <laughs> like that Fair point. Like, I could, I can stomp that one if I have to. <laughs> uh Spend a lovely evening with, uh, physically, I don't know how it would, how it'd work, but T-Rex would be the b- best story to tell afterward. That's true. <laughs> and if I'm going to marry one, I think the vegetarian is the easiest one to spend a life with. See, I would marry Brontosaurus because that's the kind of strength and stability I'm looking for in a relationship. <laughs> I would absolutely kill T-Rex. Yeah. And the lovely evening... See, my image of Velociraptor is like a cat. Yeah, just fuzzy. It's tiny, it's fuzzy, it's got covered in knives, and just like curling up on the couch with the little Velociraptor and petting his little head. That would be lovely. (laughs) So those are my answers. There we go. Gino asks, which animal has the greatest bite force? Uh, Would it be enough to cleave a human being in half? Is there a clear winner among animals living today? Uh, what about the fossil record? I'm going to turn this question on you. Yes. So, uh, and I don't have all the numbers in my head, unfortunately. Uh, but today, we do have measurements for a lot of animals. Mammals, the highest bite force for body size are the hyenas, like by far. Which is not enough to cleave a human in half. Not enough. Good to crack bone, good to bite through bone, but not enough to cleave a human. The strongest measured bite force is the saltwater crocodile, which unfortunately most of the measurements are in newtons so that you have to like convert it, but it's like 3,000 pound force bite. Uh, Great white sharks, when scanning the jaw and reconstructing the musculature for a 
computer analysis got to like 14,000 uh, pound force, but we've never measured that. So that's one of those, an estimated that's never been confirmed because it's hard to get sharks to bite down. Like crocodiles behavior is if you put something in my mouth, I'm biting as hard as I can. Cause that's what they do. Very sharks, cooperative. Yes, exactly. Very <laughs> easy to get bite forces from sharks. Not so much. They're, they're relying on those sharp teeth to cut and slice. And they're also investigative with their teeth. So it's hard to know whether your bite was a high or a mid or a low so estimates right now, the highest one you will see a lot of people reference is the Great White, but we've never gotten that number. Yeah. So when it comes to the fossil record, it depends on which numbers you're using. Right. Actual measurements, Dinosuchus, by far, and uh, Pru- Cretaceous alligator. Yeah, Prusaurus uh, as well. Cayman. The Miocene? Cayman. Yeah, Miocene. Miocene Cayman. Those two have been looked at as definitely the strongest bite force we have confirmed of any predator in the fossil record. Because if, if you just scale by size, which crocs a day, their bite force scales with size. Yeah. So if you go from 20 to 40 feet, it gets ridiculous. But if you're using the great white, Megalodon right. has the highest Presumably estimated. it would be Megalodon. So, yeah. And with Megalodon, yeah. And Dinosuchus, yeah, I'd say those could cleave you. Yeah, I would think so. <laughs> uh, great whites, <laughs> it, I don't know. if It wouldn't surprise me if a salty could do it. Yeah, uh, I'd... Well, we're, salties we're are stringy. That's the thing is, salties are crushing bites with holding teeth. So they're not meant to slice. While a great white's teeth, that's what it does. So, like, I I feel like you could be, but I don't know whether you'd blame that on the force or the teeth. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, no, the shark would have a better shot at it, I think. Yeah. Good question. Cool question. Tomas asks, or Thomas, Tomas, yeah. have you ever believed in a hypothesis slash theory that later proved to be false or incorrect. Absolutely, though I'm having I'm struggling thinking of an example of like what it was, but I I know it's happened where I've well talked about a thing and then found out later and gone, oops. I know that we were both real on board with the the tool use in Gators and Crocs. Yeah, exactly. Which we just the other episode discussed that it might not be mm-hmm. quite it. I want to say way early on in our the podcast one of us made a comment about bumblebees and the, oh, yeah, the whole yeah. i this is i guess this isn't really a hypothesis but that misconception yep. that they're not supposed to be able to fly there's i as a child i was definitely on board with the idea of pack hunting in dromaeosaurs yep. which isn't directly false but is also not actually substantiated really by a lot of evidence so there's there there have been Plenty of times. And when I was younger, absolutely where I just would spout things things I was sure was correct and then would learn that it had been updated without me noticing within the last little bit. So absolutely. Yeah. Oh, it happens. And it'll happen again. Yep. That's how science goes. Farmer Devin asks, what about megaflora and their connection to megafauna herbivores? What was their food? I have heard that the pawpaw is an example of... this relationship so it sounds like what farmer devin is asking about are the is is what's called megafaunal fruit syndrome (laughs) so there is this really cool uh concept that there are plants that are still around today even though the main predators right the herbivores Mm -hmm. that ate them and dispersed their seeds aren't around anymore yes and so it's things like osage oranges 
and uh, oh um 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 oh boy the thing millennials like uh the avocados avocados <laughs> yep <laughs> avocados where you have a bunch of these plants that have these big seeds and that aren't really eaten by many things anymore and so they don't disperse very well which you know not not much eats them not much is capable of eating them they don't really get dispersed they don't make sense in the the setting of today's right environment people look at them and they go oh, well what what is the deal with this plant why do you have a, a pool ball in inside your pit right and the plant saying well what did you do with all the ground sloths <laughs> There's also at least a couple of plants, I can't think of names off the top of my head, that have really big thorns, really high up, Yeah. that don't seem to be warding off anything today, but are at... I uh, uh, Several months ago, I was at the Gray Fossil site, and uh, the, the crew was picking through the micro stuff, and one guy there, David, pulled out a little a thorn, a fossil thorn from our fossil site, that was about as long as a penny is wide. And he called it the Mastodon Stabber. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there are plants today that seem to be adapted to an, an ecosystem that doesn't exist anymore because their dispersers are not there. Yeah, they survived their predators. <gasps> Eric asks, in reference to the Thanos finger snap. <laughs> hey. So this is... Uh, uh, Infinity War spoilers. The, the blip. <laughs> the, yeah, the blip. It assumes... So uh, the, the Thanos finger snap was half of all life gets wiped out. Yep. It assumes all species reproduce at the same rate, which is obviously not the case. Would wiping out half of every population create a competitive disadvantage for species that can't replenish their numbers as quickly? I was thinking something similar to the megafaunal extinction... Humans seem like they could bounce back way easier than Asgardians, for example. <laughs> Absolutely. That, oh, yes. That is a, that's a concern in modern day conservation. You know, if I went to Africa and I cut all species in half, I have effectively wiped out the rhinos. Yes. Like, I have lowered their numbers to a point now that they very likely won't bounce back without extreme help. That's very much what happened to the cheetahs. We call these bottlenecks. Your population gets so small that now you don't have the diversity to bounce back. So if your population's already small and you have it, that's one issue. And then also, if I have the elephants, 50 years from now, elephant numbers are still going to be kind of low. Yeah. If I have the mice, 50 years from now, no one will have known I halved the mice. Right. <laughs> like, no one will be able to tell. So absolutely... It has an effect, and it the snap will have will be in certain species history books much longer, yeah. <laughs> as a semi recent tragedy than others. Yeah. We have our next question from Hans, who says, "What's a Christmas gift you've always wanted but never gotten?" Hmm. Yeah. A, 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 I see myself holding a pair of warm woolen socks. <laughs> People will insist on giving me books. Uh, that's not a real answer. Dumbledore said that. I don't know. This seems like a question you would have an answer to. It's I, I saw the question and I was trying to think of it. And the truth is, I don't have an answer on the top of my head. Because Christmas is my family's big time. Like, I know it's a lot of people's big time year. But, like, it's my family that, that we we prioritize everything. So it's like, all right, if you can make it for Thanksgiving, great. We expect you at Christmas. You know, like. Right. <laughs> I will forego going home for Thanksgiving so I can go home for Christmas. So Christmas is our big time of year. And not to be like, 
my life's just wonderful and sugar covered. But I, no, I mean, I, I, I can't think of a Christmas present that like multiple years. It's just like, he's, it's never going to get that. Your, your, uh, whistle. Yeah. It's, I've never, you know, it's my whistle, my, my red rider, uh, yeah. BB gun. Uh, so I, I, I'm the worst to ask this question. <laughs> I never know the answer to the question. What do you want for the holidays? I have no idea. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> David wants the holidays to be over. <laughs> well no it's, they're fine for a little while <laughs> our next question comes from Ryan who asks does each division in the geologic time scale mark a mass extinction even the smallest of divisions for example was there a mass extinction between the Plinsbachian and, Tor- and Torsian ages or any other pair of consecutive ages if not what other factors cause such divisions good question that's a really good question. Uh, so for the most part, if not mass extinctions, yeah, most of the divisions are going to be because we see a shift in the the in the species of that time. A turnover. A turnover where there it is. It could be very just simply a species diminishes significantly. Like we stop seeing it as the main species during this time. It might not go extinct, but it might be less uh uh numerous or you know the the uh, genus might be less diverse so maybe not they don't all definitely coincide with mass extinctions but there's definitely something there that has happened to the species that's is different from beforehand yeah sometimes there are geologic factors that 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 factor in there are examples like the uh the the glaciations mm-hmm. right snowball earth periods tend to get their own designation the pleistocene starts with the ice age glacial interglacial cycles it's also associated with changes in biology because one's gonna affect the other so you can get multiple things designating your division uh, other times it's not that a group of it wasn't an extinction but a radiation the Cambrian yes. is marked by the first appearance of a lot of, th- you know, uh, recognizable animal shapes and stuff. Absolutely. Incidentally, the division that you asked about, the Plainsbachian Torsian, does have a mass extinction <laughs> <laughs> at the end of it. Like a, not like one of the big, the big five, but there is a sp- at least somewhat well-studied mass extinction at that boundary. <laughs> Next we have uh, Adam's. Who asks, what is each of your favorite personal finds of all time? Oh, goodness. That's a good question. You know, I don't have a lot of good examples, like stories of finding something cool in the field. I always used to get excited about finding snake jaws in South Dakota. But my favorite thing that I've ever found, a personal find is going to happen in the lab. And that is, and this is the easy answer, is that I discovered a new species. But I didn't find it in the site. I found it in vials. Yeah in the in the 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 collections room of the gray fossil site is my friend steve and i looked at these vertebrae and went all right those don't look like any other snake and now five years later we'll officially name them as a new species (laughs) um the story i usually tell is finding the horse tooth because it was the more exciting thing i found and i shared that story in the our horses episode but my favorite was a snake i found actually uh, because it was articulated at the great fossil site there were probably I, I don't remember the exact count but there was around a dozen vertebra backbone that were in line with ribs scattered around either side of the 
the vertebral column. It's pretty cool. And it that it was also one of the most nerve wracking ones because I every time I get close to try to uncover more of the area, I'd hear a little <laughs> as I crunched through another rib, and that was that, that was upsetting. <laughs> James asks, in your opinions. Who are some of the most influential paleontologists in the field, past and present? What were their contributions? Oh, that's a good question. I'm going to let you answer first because you you have names more readily than me usually. Sure, sure. I mean, I am excited that we live at a time where Mary Anning is getting a lot more attention. Agreed. Because she is arguably the first modern paleontologist. Found a lot of cool stuff uh, for the first time. Plesiosaurs, pterosaurs, things like that. She also sort of brought a lot of attention to some of the more fossil-rich parts of her home space, England. And she is... I I feel like her influence is now circling, coming around again, where we've kind of dealt scientifically with a lot of the fossil material she, she found. And now she's become influential as an example of how science... In the past, and also not in the past, <laughs> can serve to uh, uh, be biased against certain people. Yeah, overshadow certain members of certain groups. And so she's has turned out to be this really great role model from the past to today. Because, and I guess I should explain, Mary Anning was unrecognized at the time because women weren't allowed. Basically, to be part of paleontology. To science. Yeah, you couldn't science, you couldn't be part of the club where all the paleontologists hung out. We talked about Mary Anning a bunch in episode 19, when we talked about women in paleontology. I would definitely agree with Mary Anning. And as far as uh, people today, I have definitely names that I get excited whenever I see research from them. You know, Chris Broshues does a whole bunch of croc science, (laughs) so he's one of my favorites. Uh, But I can't think if there's like... A, a standout name for today that's the the champion of paleontology ab- above the rest. I mean, there have been people like Xu Xing is very famous for doing a lot of pioneering work on Chinese mm-hmm. uh, paleontology. There is, we talked in uh, episode 30 about Karen Chin, who is called the mother of... She has some, some sort of silly name about... She's done a ton of work on coprolite research which is this super important avenue of research that, you know, somebody had to pioneer it Mm -hmm. and she did. And then I, you know, we've talked a bunch about uh, soft tissue developments and things in the fossil record, which are still controversial, but regardless of the state of that science, Mary Schweitzer is going to be remembered for her early contributions to that avenue of study. Yeah. And so, and I've met Mary and she was super cool. So, yeah, there's a bunch of people. I hesitate to start throwing out too many names because I'm going to forget really important people and then feel bad about it. <laughs> that's why I answered my way. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why I started with someone who's dead. So those and plenty of others. Michael asks, how can the basal nature of an organism like Appalachiosaurus, the non-Tyrannosaurid Tyrannosaurid, be determined as opposed to classifying into a sister taxon. So now we're in taxonomy. Now we're in episode 10. The difference between a sister taxon and a basal taxon. So if you, if you picture your, your evolutionary family tree, if I remember correctly, a basal taxon is 
a member of an unbranched lineage at the base of a tree. So what does that mean? It means that if, for example, and I don't know Tyrannosaur phylogeny, but if you have a family of, of organisms and then one, when you're studying evolutionary relationships, comes out as the most distant cousin and it doesn't have its own branches, it's just the one, that is the basal taxon, whereas a sister just refers to anything that shares a common ancestor with something else. Yeah. So it's very, so a basal taxon is still a sister mm-hmm. to the rest of the tree in a sense. It all depends on scale. So like humans and Neanderthals are sister taxa because we are the closest related species to each other. But today in the modern world, you could consider the genus Pan and the genus Homo lineages kind of as sister taxa. Mm-hmm. Because on the grand primate tree, they're just going to be right there next to each other. So it's it's all relative. Generally, a basal taxon is going to be one at the base of a tree that is just one line and doesn't branch off into its own sort of separate group. But again, it, it's, it, you know. <laughs> Ed asks, what fossil evidence is there for how insects evolved flight? Good question. Very good question. Not Episode a lot. six. Nope. <laughs> very, very little. <laughs> uh, so when it comes to insect flight, there are, uh, we run into the issue we ran into with bats that the first flying insects are flying insects. You know, they, it, the earliest fossils really just look like big cockroaches in their overall shape. And so they seem to be fully flighted. We don't have something that seems to be in between. So really what we, all we have are other features on previous uh, insects and modern insects that could very well have been the source of that appendage. Right. A lot of insect evolution work is done using modern insects and genetic studies and things like that. So the, the three most common ones that at least... Back when we we did that episode and I I, I went through that research uh, was either A, it started as some sort of parachuting feature, something that allowed bugs to jump and then not float safely because if you drop an ant from the Empire State Building, they fall safely. They can't fall fast enough, but land upright, parachute and land and start scurrying away immediately that eventually became flappy bits, gills, you know, external gill flaps that are were maneuverable to aerate themselves or that became paddle like features for swimming and that that swimming then became flapping then became flying and which one it was as far as i'm aware we still don't have a really good answer for need more fossils yes luke says what does paleontology look like in the developing world it sometimes seems to me like there are unsavory neo-colonial aspects to first world paleontologists making discoveries in quotes in africa and south asia good question i will not answer this in too much depth because honestly i don't know a ton about it but in general so so developing if you go to wikipedia and type in developing countries it'll bring up a map and the map basically calls the developed countries are U.S. and Canada, a bunch of Europe, Australia, developing countries ends up being a lot of Eastern Europe and Asia 
and South America and parts of Africa. And what's interesting about developing countries today is that for a long time, they just didn't do paleontology, presumably because they didn't have a framework to do. You know, paleontology is sort of a luxury for a country. If you're developing, if you're still trying to make sure that people have jobs and such, early paleontology was done by rich people. Yeah, I mean, it's not often saving lives or revolutionizing the way you live. So these days, it's really interesting because we see places like China and Mongolia and Argentina are up and coming in the paleontology world because they're just now starting to get into the kinds of things that the U.S. and Canada and England have had going on for over a century, which means on the one hand, lots of cool new stuff's coming out. And on the other hand, those are the kinds of places that also have a lot of issues with things like smuggling and things like fossils being removed without proper documentation and then ending up on a market somewhere, which does tie into some of that unsavory neocolonialism that you're mentioning. And that's just because these are places that don't have legal systems in place, that don't have a lot of experience locking down that kind of stuff where it's it the system is easier to exploit and so yeah unfortunately you get people doing it but it also means that they're some of the most exciting places to go to for paleontology not just for people traveling there from other countries building you know uh respectful relationships mm-hmm. instead of stealing stuff but for people in those countries we spoke in our diversity and paleo bonus episode after episode 19 One of the voices you heard was Sana El Said, who, if I remember correctly, was the first woman in Egypt to get a degree in paleontology. Right. So in the developing world, it's their countries kind of finding their paleontological footing in in some ways and learning how to deal with a past of being basically dominated by other countries coming in and doing stuff there. There have been a bunch of stories here and there of things like uh, Mongolia has had this where the Mongolian government has gotten in touch with folks in the United States and gone, Hey, that thing that's on the black, on the market over there, that's ours. And you need to send it back. Kind of like how artwork you'll hear stories of, yes, that artwork, look, this, this awesome ancient or African artwork that is in this museum. And then somebody goes, yeah, and it doesn't belong there because it was stolen and it belongs back here. So it's, and I, I don't want to say too much more about it, because I'm sure it is much more detailed than I personally have knowledge of. But as far as, as I'm aware, that uh, that that's what I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> Good question. I, I'm curious to learn more myself. So ask again next year and we'll see. We'll see what we have. Vladimir asks, what is the most unique, in your opinion, Non-extinct endemic species. Non-extinct endemic species. So an endemic species is one that is found, that is specifically found in a particular place. So something like, you know, the dodo is an extinct example, was found on an island. And it was unique to that island. That's a very good question. I got very excited about the Lord Howe Island stick insects. Yeah. (laughs) They were called, um... Oh, they were called something lobsters. They're, they're stick bugs, and they lived on Lord Howe Island. Yeah. I, I, one of my favorites has always been the Komodo dragon because you know it's only found on 
the island of Komodo. And it, there might be some that show up on the surrounding islands, but I, the main population is just on Komodo Island. And it's one of the few remaining uh, apex predator lizards that we have. And that's super cool that we're, we're getting a glimpse at a, a predatory ecosystem that we don't really have anywhere else. Like you have Perini in other places, but it's not the Komodo. Yeah. And so, and I mean, as far as endemic species go, I also shout out to monotremes. Yeah. Cause boy, those are weird. Yeah. Platypus and echidna. Speaking of that part of the world. (laughs) Clara, our next questioner said, asks, do you think high level intelligence could ever develop among other animals like crows or elephants? How long would it take and how would conditions need to change in order for that to happen? So this is the same kind of question that we were talking. We touched on this a little bit earlier, that question of intelligence and the development of something, you know, not necessarily human, but human like, you know, something uh, equating our level. And the the challenge there is partially what we said before. Our sample size is one for human like intelligence. But then the other issue is that we're not very good at measuring intelligence. Like, intelligence is a concept that is very hard to define. So, you know, we even within humans, right? Like, when we make intelligence tests for human beings, like, IQ is a famously controversial concept. They're usually bad. (laughs) Because usually the people that are ranked the most intelligent are the people of the demographic of the people that made the test. Yeah. Well, they were smart enough to make the test. (laughs) (laughs) So, which is to say, uh, you know, well-off white people. And so from a species perspective, it's really hard to say how intelligent is a crow and how intelligent is an elephant. And are they even capable of exhibiting the same kind of intelligence that we do? What would it look like? How would they get there? That is very, very difficult to say. But in a sort of very general speculative way, yeah, I don't see why not. And uh, as a as a not counter, but as a, a, a kind of alternate answer to the question, uh, there are people who, if you were to ask that, would say they already have. Right. Like crows and elephants and, you know, octopuses already have achieved higher intelligence. Like you've got tool use and strong cultural, you know, uh, uh, passing of information that that's high intelligence are they as smart as us humans well maybe i mean like depends on which species you ask (laughs) i've seen some crows that are definitely quicker problem solvers than people i know that's true you know and not to be like funny but like truly there are things that they seem to learn faster than the average human might because that's what they're good at uh, but absolutely, I think the biggest thing is that would need to change isn't something environmentally, but there would need to be a benefit to the animal that there or that there isn't already. Like octopuses don't pass on information because their parents die, and elephants are huge. So is getting smarter really going to help them when you're already too big to eat by most things? And crows can fly, so like maybe they already have an advantage that makes up for the lack of building a gun. An intriguing uh, posit. Lori says, I'd love to know more about carnivorous Cenozoic mammals, and then lists a whole bunch of examples like Entilodons and Hyenodons and Thylacoleo, Andrew Sarkis, etc. I agree. Yeah, they're super cool. I agree. I would like to hear more about those too, because 
they are neat and getting kind of to the point of the question it is true that very often cenozoic animals we focus on mega herbivores and smilodon yes <laughs> <laughs> the famous ones and that's that is kind of a shame because there are some weird predators that don't have you know modern representatives you know modern representation so they're kind of alien which so much of the synexotic doesn't feel as alien because we have animals that look like the ones we talk about so if you have cenozoic mammals you want to hear about as always let us know Bo now asks what were the largest terrestrial and aquatic predators of the carboniferous so very generally the largest terrestrial predators of the carboniferous would have been early amphibians yeah so you had these early tetrapods, these sort of salamander-shaped creatures that came in all shapes and sizes, some of which were croc-sized. I've seen estimates, and I don't have a specific name or source to reference, but I have seen estimates that put some of them at up to six meters, which is crocs. That's, that's, about, that's the size of crocs today. That's a good size croc. And in the water, I know that there were a bunch of big fish. That is, uh, Dunkleosteus was already gone by that point, but there were sharks and such. I've seen, there is a fish called Rhizotus that I have seen estimated at seven meters, but I don't know where seven meters comes from. I've seen six meters for the terrestrial amphibians in papers, Yeah, which I assume means that it was actually referenced somewhere. I've seen a couple websites say Rhizotus was seven meters long, but I don't know what the source is for that, so I don't know if that's actually true. So... Big fish, big early tetrapods. So, croc-sized, great white shark size. <laughs> Rita asks, what's your favorite example of a movie getting something right about extinct animals, paleontology, or science in general? Oh, that's a good question. I'm not sure, like, it, like I don't have a, a set favorite example right away, but there are definitely moments that have been really cool when things have done that. And accurate feathering is usually high on my list. And even though I did not see the movie, because I heard it wasn't good, but Dinosaur Island, I think, was... Journey to Dinosaur Island. Journey to Dinosaur It wasn't good. Yeah. It's uh, a kid's... I mean, your kids might like yes. it. Yes. I didn't like it. But the the feathered T-Rex that they had, uh, that they showed in the trailer, was beautiful. Yeah. That was really awesome. And then the, they still treated it like a T-Rex. You know, they didn't... You know, be like, all right, we made it fuzzy now. It's got to be the kid's best friend. No, it's still T-Rex, and it's awesome and terrifying. I want to shout out to Interstellar for two things. One, for being the only movie I know of that depicted quantum, uh, 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 oh, the word, there's a word for it, time dilation. Yes, time dilation. In a accurate, understandable way. And for having a depiction of a black hole that was published. The people that worked on the black hole imagery in the movie Interstellar made a it was a bunch of physicists made a model that slightly modified made it into the movie and then was published on that's pretty cool that's really cool mark says i'd love to hear more about paleopathology uh, but i've always wondered about how the process works i.e do they demineralize fossils the way we would do for a bone prep and do they use any special stains or do they just do they just microtone thin sections of rock to look under light microscopy? Good question, Mark. So paleopathology is about studying ancient evidence of diseases and injuries and such. So I 
sent this question to my friend Laura, our friend Laura, my friend Mathis, who studies paleopathology. And Laura said, CT scans are the method of choice. So CT, you can, you can do CT scanning in lieu of demineralizing fossils or staining fossils or anything like that when possible because it's non-destructive. So whenever possible, we want to not destroy the fossils. But there are many different techniques, I'm sure, that I don't know very much about. Yep. Cool. Good question. Josh asks, what are your thoughts on the Anthropocene? I think there are good arguments on both sides. Um, We have massively affected our ecosystem, but have we really been around long enough to name an entire epoch after ourselves? This this is a, a difficult question. So the Anthropocene would be... Uh, is is a proposed you know uh, a geologic age basically encompassing the modern day the yeah since the atomic age yeah. or since the industrial whenever people want to place it since we started heavily affecting global ecosystems my my thoughts on it are kind of will the anthropocene be a thing at, probably at some point it, should it be a thing now i don't know that i would vote yes if 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 a poll were put out i don't know that i would vote yes on adding it to the geological ages because i do think there is you know potentially more ego there than hard science and it also is runs into that same issue that most younger geological ages have have in that we can be very nitpicky in how we define the age but are we just being nitpicky because we have more resolution like right is it really as significant as other ages or are we just noticing it because it's we're zoomed in farther than we possibly could be any other time? I agree with that uh, for the most part, though I have seen the argument that, you know, people will say, well, the Anthropocene, the whole idea of naming the Anthropocene seems to me like it's just a publicity stunt and you're doing it to gain attention. Basically, mm-hmm. you know, basically pointing the finger at humans and the effects we've had on the world which is not the worst thing in the world like there may be some validity to the idea of saying hey everyone we named a whole new epoch after ourselves so maybe start paying attention now so not that i advocate for making major scientific decisions for the sake of publicity and uh, impact but on the other hand, as a science communication tool, there might be some merit to it. So I'm sure that people with stronger opinions than us will yes. ultimately decide the answer to that. Absolutely. Rick asks, what would you <laughs> like to ask David and Will? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, what would we like? So, yes, the question in the <laughs> in the forum was, what would you like to ask David and Will? <laughs> how how you doing, Will? bad not bad uh how are you doing i'm i'm doing okay i'm excited to go home for christmas yeah are you are you gonna do you have like is it gonna be like the whole family thing it's gonna be my immediate family um my grandmother probably will we'll probably do something with her kaim's gonna be there Corey and juliet are coming back from california so like not a not an extended family but uh uh, immediate and adoptive family (laughs) Well, that should be nice. Yeah. How about you? Yeah. What are you and uh, Ashley <laughs> going <Yeah. laughs> to do? 
we're gonna hang out and do i'm not gonna do anything it's i'm gonna celebrate the holidays my favorite way which is in the absence of other human beings <laughs> for the most part i i, I want to uh it's gonna be a nice chill time uh probably gonna hang out with some friends nice i think i was talking with one of our friends about babysitting their kids so they can go see star wars a noble a noble cause yeah <laughs> And yeah, there may be some D and D happening while you're gone. Jealous. It was, I was requested today before this recording to do like mini. I'll, someday we'll have to come up with a Christmas special. I'm, I've I've had <laughs> I have an idea written. You out. do Christmas, I'll do Halloween. <gasps> All right, deal. Good question. <laughs> well, you didn't even ask a question, Rick. But it was a nice good, little break. Good question, David. We are. <laughs> Thank you. I'm I'm glad I submitted it. <laughs> Our next question is, so this is, uh, uh, two people asked this question. So this is from Brittany and Jesse, who asked, in slightly different wording, which episode from 2019 is your favorite? Alternatively, what has been your favorite episode topic from this year? So this year started with episode 52. Mm-hmm. And ends, uh, we haven't actually recorded it yet as yes. of this, but we'll end with episode 77 on Tetrapods. It's so it's always so hard to pick a favorite because there's the mixture of do I like the topic better or do I like the discussion we had better? Yeah. And I'm not sure. I think for safety, uh, for <laughs> for laziness and safety, I will go with uh, Spooky, Ooh. which like always fun. As far as which one did I have the most fun when we did it? That one will basically always be that ant. Like <laughs> that one's just pure fun, even if it's not the one I would rank highest if forced to do so. Yeah, I thought the year started out real strong. I had uh, fifty-two was bioacoustics in the fossil record, that which was, was a ton of fun. That was a lot. We that was our first using some other uh, media. Yeah, it was in it. And fifty-three was the baculum, which I had so <laughs> much fun putting together. I learned so much; it was super cool. And then I gotta say, though, it is always an utter delight to have Allie on the podcast. And in 2019, we had her on twice. It was For episode 57 and for episode 73. Really nice. And it's just so nice when Allie gets to join us. So those, those might be, those are up there. Yeah, these are the four, the, the, the front runners. Yes. Well, listeners... What were your favorite episodes from 2019? Please, I would love to see what Let us know. Had. We'll see how it meshes with the download numbers. Yes. Cool. <laughs> All right, so next we have Michael, who asks, what is one extinct animal you would bring back and why? There needs to be a why other than it would look cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, that cuts out most of the snakes. <laughs> I mean, honestly, going back all the way back to episode 8, and conservation paleontology, I mean, mammoths or mastodons would be a real good choice for ecosystem balance. That is that is the, the first thought that comes to mind. That is assuming that we can care for them in this deteriorating world of ours. But something, like, I'm excited to see what comes out of some of these rewilding and... and, and de-extinction efforts like the passenger pigeon and things like that because there is the potential for reconstituting ecosystems that have failed so especially very recent things yeah. like the passenger pigeon's a good example so yeah that 
that would be uh, very cool. And also ask me again in 10 years. <laughs> uh, there will be more options. The, uh, the, one of the things that also comes to mind for me would be, um, Great Plains Predators. Oh, here yeah. in North well, America. for bringing back mammoths. Yep. We like, gotta bring back something to eat them. Bring back Panthera Aatrox or the, the American Ooh. Cheetah to, to actually br- make that a Plains ecosystem again. Yeah. Alexander asks, are there any dig sites in Germany or in the Alps that can be visited by the public? Probably. I have an answer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That was my answer, but I I tweeted about it. And Sebastian, who is a paleontologist who studies crocs, who I got to meet a few years ago, answered that Holtzmaden has a quarry where visitors can dig, as well as a couple of visitor quarries dotted around the Solenhofen area. Uh, Sebastian says, I've been to all of those and they are quite fun. So the Solenhofen area is where things like Archaeopteryx are famously known from. I have no idea where Holtzmaden is, but I assume you can Google it (laughs) and it'll it'll be there. (laughs) Very cool. All right. So Jenna asks, are there any hot topics slash controversial issues slash questions currently going on in paleontology that you have strong feelings about? Oh, boy. Hot topics. You know, uh, mine end up being less about the science and more about how the science is portrayed. That's that would be my answer as well as as a uh, there are definitely topics I am I feel strongly about, but it's as an educator more than a because I'm not currently a researcher. (laughs) Right. So like. The idea of the way that dinosaurs are depicted. And because there's all these arguments online about, you know, I like my dinosaurs this way and I, I don't like art that looks like this and that and that. And then there's things like how uh, the, the news talks about various mm-hmm. prehistoric, you know, paleontology topics that, yeah, I wish there was more science communication. I I feel very strongly that scientists should be trained in science communication. It's something that I'm trying to get to be part of. I don't want to say get the ball rolling, but be part of the rolling ball at conferences and at our local university where scientists need to be trained in that. That is, that is definitely a personal pet peeve as well Is it, it frustrates me, you know, if, especially if like I hear a researcher complain about having to do something with the public. Right. Right. And it's, I get it. Trust me. I get it. I get it more than you do. Because <laughs> you're just talking about the public, not even like school groups. Right. <laughs> so I get it. But also, that's not cool. Like, well, and it that doesn't help. It should be part of... It, it doesn't have to be every scientist. But there should be more opportunities for scientists to get involved in science communication. Not just being doing it, but also being trained in how to do it. And being opportunities to train others. And there's a lot of cool stuff. I don't want to make it sound like there's none. There's all sorts of great SciComm yes. workshops and, and and cool opportunities like that. And, and Twitter has allowed a lot of people to start yep. doing that in a more casual way. But, you know, I went through seven years of schooling in academia and I never had official training in how to communicate to the public. And I think that we should. Yes, we should. Because it's it is a crucial skill that it's not it's not just about knowing the science. You need to know how to talk. Yes, <laughs> talk well. And also, if we want to get hot topic, controversial uh, demographic representation in our science, not good. No. no, and that it is something that has been 
getting talked about more and more. We've already referenced in this episode back to our Diversity in Paleo recording and our Women in Paleontology episode where we talked a bit about this. Well, we talked a bunch about yeah. with Michelle, who joined us to talk about all the ways that our science historically is built on foundations that are exclusionary to certain groups of people and has not gotten over that in terms of racial divides and in terms of gender divides and in terms of identity divides. Just the other day, there was an article in Nature Geosciences about race and racism in the geosciences. And it was a very, it was this, it was short and it was this wonderful overview of what are the issues and why is it so hard to get people on board with getting involved in the discussion and what is the perspective of people who are in underserved demographics versus the perspective of people who aren't. So this discussion of, and it's been really cool to see various institutions, you know, adjusting their rules and their regulations and providing more opportunities for openness to women and for people of various uh, racial minorities and for LGBTQ, the whole spectrum of identity and Mm -hmm. such. There are wonderful steps happening in the right direction, but that it is an absolutely serious problem. It's still an uncomfortable topic to bring up, which is not, good right like it's <laughs> i'm a little uncomfortable right now yeah like the <laughs> fact that it's it is still that means it's still a problem yep so yeah there are there are some <laughs> so there you go jenna that's a topic that i feel very strongly about is we need to do better at serving our full community treating everyone like human beings that would sure be nice michael asks why do areas of nutrient poor soil and nutrient poor water tend to be located equatorially in the equator region and hold the greatest biodiversity? Did extinct ecosystems follow the same pattern? Good question. Uh, I can't answer on the extinct ecosystems right away, but I can answer the first part. For instance, when it's in rainforests, the soil there is very poor, does not grow things very well, which seems counterintuitive because that's where all the plants are. And the reason the soil is so poor is because there's so many plants. They have sucked the nutrients out of the soil. I've also had it explained that uh, from our friend Kila that places that are equatorially located tend to have more precipitation, yeah, which washes nutrients out of the soil as well. And so basically, you know, there being low nutrients in soil and water is because it's being utilized. Uh, you know, if you don't have a lot of life sucking it up or water washing it out, then it can sit there, which means it's great, but there's not as much stuff growing. So it's kind of, you know, it's, it's a sign of good growth. It's just harder to grow new things. Part of the reason for the biodiversity is that there's so much, uh, diversity in the topography. So you'll get, you know, in, in South America, as we talked about in episode 74, you got river basin and you've got mountains and you've got plains all sorts of places plus the warm climate means that there is at least for certain groups of life more diversity that is able to live there when it's you know uh, higher temperatures typically means higher humidity higher you know moisture in the air not always you know of course there are things like deserts but you get the rainforest band around the world at the equator because that's where it's warm enough for there to be that rainforest habitat that high precipitation 
high plant growth, high sunlight. There's no times of the year that kill it back with freezes. So, yeah, it's it's a place that promotes life to just grow out of control. As far as extinct ecosystems, it probably was true in the past. I I mean, I would be baffled if it wasn't. I mean, the 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 world still works generally the same way. Chemistry so. <laughs> chemistry's been chemistry the whole time. <laughs> yep. I mean, if like the continents weren't on the equator, then maybe not. Yeah. But for the most part, yeah, I would think so. Cool. All right. So now we have Renee who asks if we can talk about organisms adapting to anthropogenic climate change. Uh, Have we found a 21st century equivalent to the peppered moth? That is an excellent question. Very uh, modern topical. So the peppered moth is the famous example around industrial times of a moth that as soot covered the forest, changed color for camouflage, and then when it cleared up, changed color back. Yeah, it was uh, the uh, moths were mostly white and some were dark. And then when the soot came in, the dark ones came became common. Yep. So natural selection in action. So the answer to have we found examples like that for climate change is yes, everywhere, all over the place. A bunch. So I looked up a bunch of examples. And I found, so there there have been a bunch of species, animals and plants, that have, we've seen changes in the timing or the pattern of things like breeding, egg laying, flowering, migration, hibernation. Uh, some of these have been linked to genetic changes in plants, in mammals, in birds, fish, insects. We have seen genetic change associated with behavioral shifts in response to warming climates. Things coming out of hibernation earlier, or changing migration patterns, or shifting the breeding season. Yeah, we're seeing genetic shifts in response to climate change all over. Absolutely. I even found a couple of studies that do mention color changes. So one study looked at tawny owls. Tawny owls come in pale and brown colors, And over the last 50 years, the study noted that as snow cover in general has been decreasing, the brown coloration in tawny owls has become more common than the white. And another study looked at a species of snail, I think it was land snails in the Netherlands, that the the snails come in light versus darker colors that are known to correlate with where they live, local temperatures. And over the last 50 years, the colors have changed, the warmer temperature colored snails becoming more common. Yeah. So we are surrounded by peppered moths. And there's even been examples of just slight adaptations to just humans' civilization. Like, I know there was uh, some kind of bird that they were seeing them evolve shorter wings to better dodge traffic because they often nested at bridges. Yep. So... Yes. Yes to all of it. We are surrounded by peppered moths. I get that on a shirt. There we go. Uh, Renee also asked, can you give a quick shout out to my coworker Jennifer S., who is a science librarian? Sup, Jennifer S.? Hey! <laughs> Our next question is from Michael, who asks, In Amazing Dino World, 2019, and the PBS series The Dinosaurs, 1992, There are depictions of Pachyrhinosaurus with a massive horn on its snout. Is there any evidence for this animal having such a horn? That's a good question. Uh, I actually looked this up the other day because of, um, because I was watching a a video of Tirzu, the the 
YouTube channel that does the uh, video game stats for animals. Right, right. Uh, and they were using a documentary from um, Curiosity Stream that had uh, that was showing them with that large horn. And I, when I realized what dinosaur it was supposed to be, was confused. Right. So I went to look it up, and from what I could find, there are studies that suggest it could have been a spot for keratin-based horns oh, like a rhino like a rhino but i couldn't find anything official that said we think it did okay. like that it interesting that there is direct evidence that it had them so some people are are using the paleo art uh, uh speculative brush to d- display them that way cool yeah good question our next is from eric who asks if we could do an episode on epigenetics uh, it says, I'm sure it would have a huge impact on interpreting the fossil record. Absolutely. Added to the list. Yes. Epigenetics um, is super cool. I wonder how much... So epigenetics is the, the whole realm of the outside of genetics, genetic information. Yeah. <laughs> so stuff that is... The, the, basically the ways in which genetics is malleable within the functioning of an organism. Yeah. The genes can be turned on and off for different functions and different conditions. I wonder how much it impacts the... Fo- I wonder if we could even know in the fossil record. That's, that's the main issue is that, like, I'm sure epigenetics was doing all the crazy stuff it's doing today throughout the fossil record, but I don't know how we would find out about it except for it opening up our minds to new interpretations. Like right. if Variability we, in, yeah. the, in certain traits. If we see that there's something common that epigenetics does, it might give us a clue that goes, okay, well, that actually might answer this question. We can't yeah. confirm that it does, but it is another option to put on the table. I think there have been some epigenetic studies on ancient DNA. Cool. So, yeah. All right, on the list. Zoology student asks, How frickin' weird is teleost evolutionary history? (laughs) Teleosts are a big group of fish that include most of the ray-finned fish. And could you please do an episode about it? Happily. Sure. As daunting as fish episodes are. Oh, boy. (laughs) I don't know much about teleost evolution. I don't know anything about them specifically, you know, other than just uh, that they are the, you know, the ray fin fish and kind of when they came about. But, uh, you know, I don't know the quirks of them in particular. But yeah, sure. And I'm I'm sure I'll end up being the one that probably... Probably. <laughs> spearheads Will at the fish point. guy. Never would have thought. <laughs> cool. All right. So Michael now asks, uh, when... When you speak of specialization, you often refer to specialized organisms being the first to die off during ecosystem collapse. But under gradual environmental change, are there any examples of specialized organisms evolving into more generalist lifestyle? Absolutely. So specialist usually refers to a a species or a group of animals or plants or anything else that we do that a lot a group of animals or plants yeah sorry Alan, <laughs> or fungi or bacteria that have a very specific lifestyle they eat something specific they live somewhere specific they're highly limited for some reason either on what they can eat or where they can live right etc and oftentimes yeah you get a specialist something goes wrong ecosystem's gone but you can absolutely get something that starts out specialized and then diversifies and the best example in my opinion are snakes (laughs) snakes have a very specialized body plan they they have no limbs which is a specialized thing to do probably were uh, 
either living you know, they may have been living like some modern limbless lizards which tend to be kind of cryptic they tend to be in the soil the leaf litter snakes are purely carnivorous which is a specialization right generalists eat anything and so at one point you can imagine snakes having been something rather specialized over time but today there are snakes in a thousand different niches in a thousand different ecosystems all over the planet birds arguably are another good example yeah flight is a very specialized like you're doing a very your whole body has adapted to doing this very particular thing but now that you are in that space you have opened up a world of new possibilities for yourself and there are definitely examples like you said of a group diversifying and then being able to be more generalist like the you know uh with birds again of they diversify and then if there's a mass extinction the most specialized birds might not survive but their cousins who are closer to a generalist might be able to shift and survive because they can even if they don't prefer to survive a different way indeed indeed good question blaine asks what is your favorite fossil pokemon and if you could each choose one prehistoric animal to be represented as a fossil Pokemon, what would it be and why? Yay. Good question. Uh, I For the favorite, I kind of have my two answers because classically, Kabutops. Cool Pokemon. Like, that was always my favorite hands down. Uh, nowadays, though, like very recently, Tyrantrum has, has come in just because that's a that's an awesome it's just real cool oh he just he's just so tough and cool i've always been a fan of aerodactyl but uh as i said in the pokemon episode anorith has a special place in my heart yeah so i do like anorith as well as far as what which fossil animal we would add uh i would add if able to my biggest vote is an extinct mammal yep because we don't have any like something cenozoic and my talking with my friend Lucas, who does the Science of Pokemon podcast, uh, we both came up with the that we thought it would be a cool idea for them to do giant ground sloth and make it fighting type and yeah. punching people with its big like <laughs> something like that. Yes, do something furry, please. <laughs> yeah. Also, again, it nods to our good friend Allie. It'd be cool to have a plant fossil Pokemon that was actually a plant. True. Like crinoid, Lilip and Cradily, which are based on crinoids, are grass type, but they're they're not plants. They're still animals. They just look like plants. But it'd be cool to have some like a a tree based Pokemon that is based on Lepidodendron, yeah, or something like that. That'd be a lot of fun. Good question. Hey, listeners, what's your favorite fossil Pokemon, and what prehistoric animal would you like to see become a uh, Pokemon. Let's make a list. We'll mail it to Nintendo. <laughs> Tawny asks, if factory farms were abolished, where would cows go? I think <laughs> they are by far the most domesticated of the farm animals. So would they just kind of go extinct or would they adapt? That's a good question. Would you get feral cows? Uh, surely there are feral cows somewhere. I just, I mean, because, you know, we still have wild bovids like right i I imagine that 
this is a good question for our friend Jeff. Yes. Like, could we just release him with the bison? And, and would they just mesh and, and become part of one whole? I think... I mean, obviously, I think most of them would die. Because, yeah, no, we've... The same way that most dogs let out into the wild would yeah, not do well. There's a very small percentage of dog breeds that tend to do well when left out and about. But I wouldn't put it past cows... Because they're still big, impressive animals. And there are definitely some cows that are more similar to their ancestry, that are more aurochs-like, and aurochs were awesome. <laughs> they were super cool looking. So I would not surprise me at all if we would get feral cows that just made a home on the in the grasslands somewhere, interbred with bison, and then gave us uh, a, a wild beefalo. Yeah, I'd assume we'd see a dip when we stopped feeding them, you know, and then we'd see an increase with those that successfully went feral. But that's it. I would love to ask somebody who studies domesticated. And I, I, Chris would be a good one to ask. Our friend Dr. Widga, he works on archaeological. There you go. He's done a lot of dog research, but I wonder if he'd have an input. He and Jeff would have inputs on cows. That'd be fun. Good question, Tawny. Here's another question from Tawny, because we randomized it, and that's what happened. Yep. <laughs> Why do you think humans didn't develop or retain the ability to keep making new teeth? That seems incredibly convenient, and I've always thought it was a shame we don't have that capability. I agree that it's a shame. Yeah, it'd be good to just crank out teeth. I would. I will happily blender food to be able to not have to worry about dentist visits. Um, <laughs> so the main reasoning that mammals in general got rid of that ability or lost the ability for just continual teeth tooth replacement is that while you know sharks reptiles most fish you know the the few amphibians that still have teeth um while replacing teeth is super convenient because if you break a tooth or if your tooth wears down over during age you just get a new one to quickly grow them they typically cannot be very specific and anyone out there who has ever had to go to the orthodontist knows that teeth coming in is when things can go wrong. Like yep. when your teeth are coming into socket, not when they're just sitting there, you know, your tooth doesn't suddenly go sideways. It's while it's growing in. So if you ever look at the teeth of a crocodile or a shark, they're all over the place. Like sharks have teeth that come in at, you know, not quite the right angle that pop out too early crocodiles all the time all the time get weird snaggle teeth that just are sticking out at almost right angles so you have more chances for things to go wrong which means you can't do the fancy chewing surfaces that we use because we we rely on our teeth matching together like puzzle pieces to perfectly grind and cut food right as most mammals do now someone out there is saying what about herbivorous dinosaurs to which yeah yeah. yeah, gizzards. Gizzards would be my <laughs> response. <laughs> I guess so. That would be part of my response to that is... But they had those tooth batteries. Mm -hmm. But, uh, as we'll explain, the, the quick answer is humans lost it. We Well, we didn't. No. That evolutionary decision was made 200 million years ago. It's just a mammal thing. And so it's it we, was... We traded specialization for quality over quantity. It's one of the ways to get those specialized teeth, and it's the one our ancestor ended up... Uh, uh, adapting so now we have fancy teeth that you only get two of 
All right. Lydia asks, which species that just barely missed interacting with modern humans do you wish had hung on just a bit longer? We missed out on the last of the Madsoyed snakes. Yeah. In fact, we, we missed out it. We missed out on it by such little time that we may not actually have missed out on it. <laughs> there are, are legends of giant snakes in Australia that may or may not actually refer to the latest of the Matsoids, Wanambi. This was a third group, right? You have your bows and your pythons. This was another group of large-bodied python-like snakes that originated in the Cretaceous. And That's we pretty cool. just, they were around, they were around for over a hundred million years. And we just missed them. Nah, that one's a shame. Dang. I, I would have to push mine back just a few million years to say the Sebasukians, because they were those terrestrial croc cousins. Ooh, yeah. Those, those would have been really nice. Oh, and forest racids. Yes. The terror birds. Yes. Oh, we just missed those. Man, that would have been, that would have been real cool. <laughs> Next time. <laughs> all right start it over <laughs> rewind just like futurama <laughs> david asks what's something about evolution that blows your mind Ooh, honestly a lot <laughs> like i that might sound like a, a a flippant answer but when we're expressing awe and flabbergastery on the podcast it's legitimate like there's a lot of things about evolution that just blow my mind. Convergences are probably one of the biggest ones for me, though. Like, just the statistical odds that two distantly, distantly related and often distantly, uh, you know, temporally placed groups of organisms come to a near identical solution to something is just amazing. It's pretty cool. So, like, the, one of the examples of that that got me, and I, I think we've brought it up twice on the podcast now, was the <laughs> fact that it was found, it was found uh, in in bats and dolphins or toothed whales that their the mutation, the 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 genetic mutation that l allowed them to arrive at echolocation is the same. What? That's super cool. What? That's oh, it's so good. Crazy. So next we have Dean who asks. Do you guys buy the theory that Therizinosaurus, Therizinosaurs evolved their claws for reaching leaves? Yeah, I'm on board with it. I think so. Uh, now, evolved their claws for is a dangerous statement. To, to Anytime you say, this feature evolved for a purpose, but that they had long claws that were useful and perhaps at some point selected for being helpful at pulling branches down and helping them eat. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't see a reason to suspect that they couldn't have been doing that. I would be extremely surprised if they weren't also using them for other things. Yes, like defensive Defense, or display. Maybe even digging. Yeah. But I mean, therizinosaurs are basically just dinosaurian ground sloths. And that's, it seems like, it makes sense for sloths to be yeah. doing it. And, you know, things like competition between individuals would also be a great way for those to come into play. Yeah. Sexual selection. <laughs> yep. That's, <laughs> I thought the exact same thing. Nathan asks, I never really got this point in the KPG and Cretaceous mass extinction. How did it affect marine biota and ecosystems on the other side of the world like Australia? 
It seems like at least some ecosystems should have been spared. No, this good question, and this is a very common um, lapse in the the understanding of the KPG extin- extinction because of the way it's so often proposed or, or explained in things. Uh, you know, we we know that the main causes of it, you know, the famous one is the asteroid, but it was also the Deacon Traps, the huge amount of volcanic activity that was releasing massive amounts of lava and geological gases yeah. into the atmosphere. Major environmental stressors. And so, while yes, the asteroid impact is the smoking gun we often point to, uh, that impact is not what caused, like the instant of the impact is not what caused that global mass extinction. Right. It didn't land on all the dinosaurs. Well, and, it or, wasn't yeah. a, a global inferno just burnt a bunch of things. Yeah, so. it's a, this was not proton torpedo taking out the Death Star. Right. You know, <laughs> that it just went boom, and then a shockwave wiped everyone out. What it was is we had a bunch, our, our heater system was broken, we had a bunch of volcanoes going crazy, <laughs> and then a car ran into our house. Right. All right, did that knock over our house? No, but we have to move out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you have to replace all this stuff. Yeah, basically what it is, is that these events were so chaotic to the ecosystem at the time that it set in motion a global change of environment and climate. So no ecosystem was spared because no one was wholly unaffected by this global change. And it's probably safe to say that there were ecosystems that were spared, kind of. Yeah, less affected. Like, like depending on where you were, even if you were, for example, near-ish, the asteroid impact, if it was a rainy day where you were, you may have been partially shielded from the heat mm-hmm. because of local weather conditions. Uh, there have been differences found in how marine plankton reacted in different parts of the world. I was going to say, like, deep ocean environments may have skipped a lot of it. Right. But, you know, that doesn't mean they were uh, oblivious right. to its effects. There is a, a trend in freshwater environments seem to have done better than terrestrial or ocean because you know whatever factor of their ecosystem maybe because they're a lot of it is feeding on runoff from nearby instead of having to feed directly on plants so different ecosystems were affected different ways but as as we've described before what it did was it pulled the rug out from under global ecosystems it made everything suffer a little bit and that suffering cascades yes it's no environment wholly stands on its own from any others i guess arguably except for deep sea vents <laughs> yeah yeah they probably did okay. yeah they probably didn't notice <laughs> <laughs> all right uh nils asks what are some cool things paleontologists could do if they had unlimited money <laughs> i.e what could paleontologists theoretically do but can't today because of a lack of funds i went around and asked this question to a bunch of paleontologists because <laughs> i thought that would be fun So our friend Sean from episode 13, who is in charge of lab and field operations at the museum at the Gray Fossil Site, he instantly thought about what we could do at the fossil site. And he was saying that with unlimited funds, you could cover the whole site. Make a dome. Make a dome, right? Cover and protect the whole site. You could have an army of people working 
all the time. Year round. You could expand the lab. Like You could increase the rate at which we work on the fossil site. Incredible. Like You could have people working eight hours a day, seven days a week, every day of the year. Go through the sediment itself super quick. And it'd be okay because there'd be so many people in the lab processing the stuff that we'd be able to keep up with it. Yes. That probably holds true for every fossil site in the world. Our friend Keela, who also works at the museum, said that what she would do with unlimited funds was hire an army of people, train and, and, and hire an army of people to go through the collections of museums mm-hmm. and properly catalog and identify all of it and then see what new stuff is waiting in there because if we stopped digging for fossils right now we would have many many decades of research left to do on stuff that's just been sitting in museums yeah that people haven't gotten around to yet i asked chris dr widga and he gave two answers one he said uh was education related he said we could put a ton of effort into education. He the he used the phrase a paleontologist in every classroom. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then yeah, you overcome a lot of those education barriers. And then he also said we could put a ton of resources into labs and techniques and equipment and people to really nail down paleoclimate and basically create a a fully realized super detailed understanding of the climate you know a climate thermometer yeah uh, but more than just temperature like a, a really good climate reading of the past that we can then ascribe to the pre- the present and the future you could create something that is near as close as possible flawlessly predictable yes so yeah we could Setting aside the fact that we could make paleontology better by making the world a better place. That's, uh, yeah. Like, <laughs> with unlimited funds, we could solve world hunger. Yeah. And we could solve, like, poverty and stuff. And then all those people in underserved communities or underserved demographics whose perspectives were missing in paleontology would now have greater opportunities to become part of the paleontological realm and all those developing countries that we talked about before we could just solve all of the problems that are stopping you we go over there and say hey what's stopping you from digging up fossils (laughs) (laughs) what what would you say are the biggest obstacles is it food we got food yep like and whatever the economic you know we we could make the world a better place so that paleontology could progress (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> absolutely <laughs> really good question and and that's i'm sure you'd get as many answers to that question as there are paleontologists oh uh the my weird answer is for like research wise uh would be sequence all the genomes oh yeah let's we we <laughs> let's make everything let's make a <laughs> phylogenetic tree of everything with dna that we can all just agree on <laughs> well, and, and and all the morphological yeah like just, you could just rack up every trait possible i want to sequence the genome so that we can stop having this weird bickering between the 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 osteological and the genetic see <laughs> results I, of stuff <laughs> i will stand in defense of the anatomical record and say you would still get oh yes weird bickering because they're you need both oh like i get that 
But I'm saying for the modern ones, though, that would clear up a lot of the weirdness if we just sequence instead of doing isolated genetic studies. That is definitely that's true. the part. Like I say, boom. Soup. Do soft tissue traits, traits, do bone traits, all the physical stuff, and sequence all the genomes. Throw an army at it. <laughs> and then, yes, we will have a definitive phylogenetic tree. Also, paleontologist on Mars. Stephanie asks, birds can have incredibly complex dances. Yes, they can. Do we know when these started to evolve, and would dinosaurs have done them too? My boyfriend and I watched Dancing with the Birds on Netflix, and it was very interesting slash hilarious seeing all the different kinds of mating displays put on by the male birds. Good question. I don't know that we have any hard evidence, and I don't know how we would get hard evidence on when this type of behavior. There was one study that came out, I think a year ago or so, that found track marks like foot right i remember that marks yeah that were interpreted as potentially being weird movement patterns in a dinosaur similar to what we see in birds that do mating dances but i stress that's real hard to interpret that's that is you will almost never be able to nail that down so that everyone agrees right but as far as would we expect to see it I'd say absolutely. I would be astonished if it, there weren't any dinosaurs, non-bird dinosaurs, mm-hmm. that didn't do stupid dances. And my my reasoning behind it is actually not the bird-dinosaur relation and how common that behavior is, but how common that behavior is in general. Uh, peacock spiders and stuff like that. Like, oh, yeah. There are arthropods that have complex, silly, stupid displays of them flattening out their abdomen and then wiggling their back legs and doing little yeah. ha-cha-cha-chas. <laughs> uh, and so, like, if it if it's evolving in those diverse of groups, absolutely, there they're almost have to have been dinosaurs that were doing embarrassing dances. And not only do birds do it, but crocs do displays. Yes. They bellow, they do the, the water ripple yeah. thing, they slap their tails. Yeah, I absolutely think dinosaurs Archosaurs do. are expressive. They sure are. <laughs> All right, Sky says, I'm curious if you ever got sorted into a house and got a Patronus. If so, <laughs> were the results what you expected? So we're talking Harry Potter now. Harry Potter houses and Patronuses. Hogwarts houses. For many years, I was under the distinct impression of what house I belonged in. And then I took the Pottermore quiz, which I assume is the Hogwarts sorting quiz. It's Yeah, it's the one everyone uses. The author wrote it. And I was put in exactly the house that I knew I belonged in, as was Will, I yes. believe. Yes, I was. Uh, though when I retook it, I got a different result as I was older, but... Interesting. Yeah. No, cool. I the first time, absolutely. I am squarely in Slytherin. I was Gryffindor and then Hufflepuff. But yeah, no, Gryffindor is what I expected. Yeah. I did get a Patronus at one point. I did too. I don't remember. I think it was like a, a hog or something. I think mine was a weasel. It was something dumb. Yeah, I, I agree. Know. No, so, so something reptilian at least. House, absolutely. Yep. Patronus, wider, widen your variety, please. Yeah, come on. You know, all right. Not everything has fur. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, we have Jill, who asks. We have two questions back to back about dinos versus birds. Jill asks. It seems to me that some non-avian dinosaurs might as well be proper birds. What would you say are the major defining differences between non-bird dinosaurs and birds? Very good question. 
there are definitely examples of non-bird dinosaurs that it is you you would be hard pressed to just clearly say and right. here is why it is obviously <laughs> and as always the lines are arbitrary yes where we decide bird starts like the evolutionary tree is real but where we decide to put the word bird is up to us yes indeed uh there are certain features that uh apply in i don't know what the official listed for like defining the group is though yeah it's usually things like uh piga style yep the piga style the short tail instead of the long tail uh fusion of a bunch of features yep. like the the sacrum into the sin sacrum the hands uh, the the fingers fusing into the bird wing shape yeah is the 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 sternum in birds is typically very yep. definable that's another one of the the breast bone typically yeah typically track cuz again in the cretaceous there was a whole variety of different dinosaurs doing different things and so it's not necessarily the things you might expect like having a beak lacking teeth being right. able to fly nope. those are not actually on the list there are absolutely birds that had teeth there are things we have called you know archaeopteryx the first bird doesn't seem like it had a beak really to speak of Mm -hmm. and there are definitely birds you know nowadays that have lost flight but early birds that we're not sure could actually achieve powered flight right you know maybe frantic flapping non-bird dinosaurs that could at the very least glide yes then may have done more and then the other Part of this discussion is a question from Christine who asks the opposite question. <laughs> what features on a bird can I point to and say, see, that bird is a dinosaur because it has this just like all the other dinosaurs. Good question. Uh, this is one of my favorite things to do is to point out. And for answers to both of these questions, by the way, episode 37, mm-hmm. we talked about the evolution of birds. So you'll get more detailed answers than we can think of off the top of our heads. I love pointing out that most of the things we think of as birds, bird features are dinosaur features. Absolutely. So like when you're doing a a class program with kids and you're wanting to do the, all right, what is and isn't a dinosaur in the fossil record? There are a few key features you go to with them. As from our uh, findings today, dinosaurs are terrestrial. Yes. Dinosaurs have upright stances. Their legs like pillars under the body under the body like a cow like a horse like us yep not out or at an angle like crocs and lizards and uh the you know there are tons of varieties in dinosaurs so it gets hard to start being much more specific past that but those are two things that birds follow aggressively (laughs) yep also they're like Feathers are a dinosaur trait. And feathers started in dinosaurs. Feathers appear to have been, maybe even at the ancestry of dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. The wishbone is my favorite one. The wishbone, hollow bones. As theropods, well. the meat-eating, the theropods have wishbones. That mm-hmm. is a defining feature of, of the theropods. And then hollow bones, and not just the hollow pneumatic pneumatized bones, but air sacs yes respiration that includes the skeleton it was present in at least theropods and sauropods Mm -hmm. those are dinosaur features that birds inherited you can also if you hold a bird like a bird leg up to a dinosaur leg you can see the same adaptations oh yeah those three feet the three toes yeah 
the the uh you know that double jointed leg that they've extended that heel into right. a very the exaggerated joint digitigrade yes so again episode 37 <laughs> is gonna give you all this good stuff very cool all right now eddie asks us can you guys set up an instagram yes yes we have actually, but we promise we'll we don't start really use it. using it. Our plan is hopefully in 2020 we'll actually start using it. <laughs> we'll we'll be better. Trevor asks, paleomycology. What's the deal with fossil fungi? Do you know any paleomycologists? For how important fungi are, they sure seem underappreciated. I don't. Do we know personally any mycologists? I do not. I don't that I know of. Uh, so absolutely, you are correct. It is under appreciated for sure uh and oftentimes upper underrepresented yeah not much fossil record in fungi that's easy to access yeah so fungi are strange uh because only certain aspects of them seem to fossilize regularly and easily i can't name you all of those aspects because i'm not a mycologist (laughs) uh but they don't seem to fossilize consistently and typically whenever you're looking at the fossil record the popularity of the modern versions tends to be a, a good indicator of how studied it's going to be fossilized. Like, do you want, you know, fossil ape studies? Well, those are studied all the time because apes are one of the most studied groups. Right. You right. know, cro- I'm, I'm lucky to be in one of those of like crocs are just always popular to study, but then you get into stuff like fungus and, you know, certain invertebrates that just get overlooked because for whatever reason, people aren't as interested to do yeah. so. So you're right, it is. They do exist. Absolutely. We had, uh, to, to give you an idea of it, uh, the early at the beginning of this year, a paper came out that identified fossil fungus from the Gray Fossil Site. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think they identified three, and at least two of them were the first time that group of fungus has ever been identified in North America. Not necessarily because the site is weird, just because... There's not a lot of studies on it. And whenever something's understudied, it also means it's much easier to accidentally overlook it. If you're not knowing what to look for when you're picking through stuff or, you know, examining tiny fossils at a site, you could absolutely be picking up and putting aside fossil fungus over and over that you just aren't recognizing. So the underrepresentation actually causes a cascade of issues. So you are right. And it needs to be. Uh, but I I don't know anyone to prod a stick at for your question. <laughs> we'll we'll have to find somebody. Yes. <laughs> All right. Our next question is from Joao, who asks, why is it most scientists do not answer the claims made by intelligent design proponents, uh, preferring to tackle secondary issues? Are they afraid of giving the impression that there are some science? There is some science in intelligent design. If somebody says that Darwinian evolution is not able to build irreduce, irreducibly complex systems, shouldn't we show, if we want to refute such a claim, how it can? Uh, I don't think that saying intelligent design is not science answers anything. Thoughts on it? Thanks. Very good question. That's a, that is a very uh, legitimate question. Yes, yeah, so let's talk about that. First of all, you are correct in... The phrase intelligent design is not science isn't really an answer. No, that's not. And and it is absolutely true that oftentimes when uh, things like intelligent design are put forth, 
that tends that is some oftentimes the response from people even from professional scientists who go nope not science not gonna talk about it yeah and while that is not a proper complete answer the reason that that tends to happen in large part is because that debate has happened yes and it's you know a lot of the ideas you know uh, uh, the question mentions specifically irreducible complexity which is an idea that was proposed over a century ago and has been scientifically tackled numerous times it's also been legally assessed like it showed up in at least one pop famous legal case mm-hmm. to assess the idea of some of these claims and it's one of those situations where unfortunately there ends up being this question of how many times does a question need to be answered in detail before people get really exasperated by it. And I I have definitely been in that situation of being faced with a question. That's one of the real, you know, those common, if evolution is right, dot, dot, dot kind of questions. And it's easy to fall into that feeling of like, I know that this question has been addressed scientifically a thousand times and i know that there's a ton of websites and books that do really good examples of it and i know that to properly answer this question is going to take a whole lot of description and a whole lot of detail and it and it's uh, it's it's a, a often can be confrontational yes and it's easy to just go you know what no that's no. not a good question Sorry. and we got to move on which again isn't a good answer, but the good answers do exist. They've been answered. The discussions have happened multitudes of times. It's the same kind of reason why if you find a astronomer and you challenge them to explain why the Earth is round, there's a good chance they're not going to spend a lot of time they're gonna go trying to it, answer that. Because it is. Like, and then move on with whatever they were doing. Because at one point... That was a legitimate discussion. Yes, we had to find out, is it? Just like uh, challenges like that to the basic concept of evolution versus some sort of design, that there were big deal discussions and debates and scientific investigations into that back in the 1800s and since when the topic was new, when it was something uh, that, that these were discussions that needed challenging but it, in the modern world, in our modern state of science, the evidence that we have has so overwhelmingly and so repeatedly favored our understanding of evolution by natural selection. Other claims don't get a lot of time spent refuting them because the time has been spent. And there's also no new information coming from them mm-hmm. to newly refute. It's the same topics and arguments, typically. So it's not... People can seem dismissive. Yes. And if you're not well-versed in the history, it can absolutely look like people are just... Dodging No, 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 absolutely no. We're not even going to talk about that. But there are plenty of online resources that will go through these examples. Um, A couple off the top of my head, if people want to explore... uh, Wikipedia is always a gamble to go to, but (laughs) if you look up the, you know, the evolution versus etc. controversy, Wikipedia... We'll have a bunch of links to things. Decent history of it. The National Center for Science Education, the NCSE, also a good website with lots of links to in-depth discussions. 
of scientific and legal issues and, and cases where this has been discussed. There's also the point that people often make that debate a debate, right? People often say, well, you should debate this. You should, should address these claims. And something like a debate requires you... Is has the assumption of spending equal time. Yes. And if someone or a group or an idea is trying to put forth an argument that has been refuted, that doesn't have good scientific standing, then providing a platform is just putting a spotlight on misleading information. Yes, it is. I'd also like to point out from an educator's point of view, it is not effective. Uh, answering these claims doesn't do anything uh, unless it's a person who's just genuinely coming from a place of curiosity. Mm-hmm. If it's a person making a claim, me responding to them with scientific evidence to the contrary, a sci- like this is not just a, a personal experience, but like research wise doesn't work. Studies show that presenting facts as a uh, opposition or alternative to a person's already uh, uh, held stance and already a uh, belief they already have or a point of view they already hold does not typically do anything to change their mind or sway them. It actually, more often than not, is going to make them more stubborn in that original stance because the facts feel more like an attack than they do a reasoning. So if someone comes up to me, you know, during my day and says, here's, here's a thing I think is why evolution is buckus. And then I go, here's all the reasons why I think that's not true. I'm not likely to have accomplished anything except for having responded verbally. So it's not it, it effective takes a, either. And education. Yeah. It is a lot of detail that goes into here is the full explanation that, that, that can overcome that sort of knee-jerk reaction that people have. And there's just not a lot of time for that. Well, and so when you see someone on the news and it's like, can you answer this? It's like, well, but it's also not even just the time for that. But if the people aren't willing to hear it, there's no point to it. Like that too. If, if it's a, if it's a person making a claim that you're answering, if they've already decided that's what they believe, there's no way to change their mind. Yeah. That's, that's not how education works. So yeah, it's not that people are necessarily dodging it, but there's not really a good reason who answer it in detail every time. Yeah. And it's unfortunate that it comes up and it, it looks like that's a a confrontational. Well, that's become a tired, you know, frustrating topic. It it is not helpful to it either. So, I mean, you're not wrong that there are issues to the response, but there are also uh, reasonings behind it. But check out uh, websites on like I said the National Center for Science Education is the first one that comes to mind that has a lot of good information on it that can go into the more details good question thank you for asking excellent Ryan asks when plants came onto land earth had separate continents so I was wondering did they start in one continent and spread out or did they invade every continent simultaneously from the ocean and uh, Ryan also adds I wonder the same thing about tetrapods Good question. Uh, yeah, the the origins of things like that are always a bit of a mystery, because of those kind of questions, and because you're, as we've said before, you're almost you're basically guaranteed not to find the fossil of the first. Right. That's just 
statistics are not on your side. Uh, so I don't know that there, like we have perfect answers for those. I, I at least don't know them off the top of my head. I would be very surprised with plants if we saw a single location as an origin. Well, I know with, uh, so the short answer is we don't know. Yes. I think that's uh, to my knowledge, the short answer is we don't know, but with tetrapods, at least the earliest tetrapods seem to have developed there's reason to think that they were coastal which means that the foundations of tetrapods were able to spread across continents because they were had marine capabilities so it may be that all of the tetrapod features showed up were in place and then tetrapods could move on to land in different places roughly at the same time it wouldn't surprise me if plants is similar because you know it it's not as we discussed it's not just a straight line yes there would have been an intermediate time where it was just a bunch of coastal dwelling maybe semi-aquatic animals and or plants that would have been able to disperse wherever they wanted in the ocean giving them access to all the continents and uh you know though we have plants today and tetrapods today that's not to say that there weren't others who attempted the transition or partially made the transition and just didn't last you know weren't the ones that ended up taking over the world but yeah i'd be very surprised if it was if the uh, um rise was isolated right I, I, we landed in in west africa and took over the continents from there that like it's not wow. impossible i don't expect it good question absolutely all right dan has our next question says, my question is on Pleistocene Europe, specifically the UK. When you look into the Pleistocene info online, there seems to be lots of info on what lived your side of the pond here in the US and less for everywhere else. Is this just because everything was better in the Americas (laughs) uh, or is it a bias in the amount of research done by American researchers do you know of anything cool that lived or happened in Europe that wasn't bigger and better in Pleistocene America? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's probably a research bias. That would be my assumption. There's more of it over here. Mm-hmm. Like the U.S. is just so much bigger than the U.K. Yep. There's just a lot more to find. But no, there's tons of cool Pleistocene stuff in Europe. You, you, you folks over there had woolly rhinos. Yeah. You had hyenas, which I think there was a Canadian hyena found recently, but I don't know that they ever made it to the U.S. I do feel like I remember that. You had, well, let's see. You had Neanderthals, which never made it over here. Lucky. I Yeah, right. And what <laughs> else was over there? Which are bigger and better, depending on bigger who you Bigger and better. <laughs> uh, yeah, the Lasmatherium was the woolly rhino, which, yeah, we didn't have Pleistocene rhinos at all. Uh, Megaloceros. The Irish elk. Yeah. Right? With the giant antlers. That was a European thing. So don't sell yourself short, Pleistocene UK. You had, now, I guess, to be fair, I don't know how much of those are found in the UK. True. But Europe had it. And, and again, I don't know off the top of my head, but during glacial maxima, sea level would have been really low. So there was probably lots of opportunities for things crossing over into the UK from other parts of Europe. So Absolutely. You had some cool stuff. <laughs> Boy, this is convenient. This next question is from Lucas. 
hey lucas uh who is will's friend (laughs) and now my friend too who asks will can you do your kermit voice while talking about (laughs) crocodiles for old time's sake it's actually kind of funny it hasn't come up more often until now right well let me ask you will uh what's the what's your favorite crocodile oh well thank you very much for asking uh, my personal favorite is actually the saltwater crocodile, which you find in you know northern Australia. Now, I room, of course, more closely to the American alligators down in the swamps here. But I prefer those because they're just, they're so impressive. They're big. They're, you know, unique in that they're just so ocean-going. And they're the biggest reptile today, which I think us cold-bloodeds need more representation. Wonderful! <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> so our next question is from Mauricio, who says, I really like the idea of isolated South America. All the different species lost on the continent had had made me wonder about what if the American interchange didn't occur. What do you guys Ooh. think? Uh, I personally think the world would be 1,000% better with terror birds and giant ground sloths. Well, you're not wrong. Ah, that's a, a thousand's pretty close to the percentage I would mark it at. I don't know if the interchange would have saved sloths. They were making mm. it over before the interchange proper happened. But the interchange does seem to have dealt a heavy blow to the, at least the South American ground sloths. Because it's hard to differentiate what was lost because of the interchange when North American creatures invaded South America versus what we lost at the end of the Pleistocene. Yes, but assuming there would have been some resilience, I mean, we might still have glyptodonts. Yeah. Although those were Pleistocene. So that's not like what went extinct at the interchange. Mm-hmm. Well, but all those cool like South American ungulates. Yes. And their carnivore. Oh, the uh, like the marsupial predators down there. That's probably what we would see the biggest thing on is that though we'd probably still lose a lot of those at the, you know, the, the megafaunal extinction yeah uh but very much like we have you know individual representatives in a lot of the places around the world that still hung on we'd probably have a lot of those weird ungulates yeah a lot of the not quite ungulates <laughs> you know <laughs> from episode 74 mm-hmm. and, and interchanged by the way episode 43 and probably south american predators not yes north american predators or mammal mammalians so to speak uh Cool. Yeah, interesting. I we like can it. Only hope the forest racids. Oh my make god! It. I'm so mad we don't have terror birds. Shit, <laughs> this this Q and A is making me mad. <laughs> Getting get us riled up. Connell or Connell? Connell, probably Connell. Con L. Con L <laughs> asks favorite music genre at the moment. Favorite song of all time. Ooh, uh, for favorite mu- music genre at the moment, yeah, is Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> I've been listening to my entire Star Wars collection since we saw <laughs> Rise yeah. of Skywalker, and I just like t- had you asked me a few days ago, it would have been Christmas because right. during December I I don't listen to anything else. This Star Wars movie really got me into <laughs> into it, so I really wanted to listen to Star Wars. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I go, I go hard. Like I said, go hard for Christmas. I turn all other music off. It's just Christmas music all month. Yep. I uh, don't blast it. <laughs> I, on the other hand, have I broke ties with one of my preset radio stations in the car at the beginning of the month. 
because they started playing Christmas music. I hate when you get like this. In November. <laughs> and I was like, nope. Th- next, this coming, like this weekend, we're recording this right before, shortly before Christmas. Mm-hmm. This weekend? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that'll be fine. <laughs> Listen to Christmas music. Pentatonix was on the radio this morning. That oh, was cool. They're so good. <laughs> in general, though, I, I'm a, a big in f- to film scores. Yeah. I like film scores. Favorite song, though. That one's... I don't have an answer That's that. hard. I I've have... never had an answer to that question. So I have, I have, like, you know, for a song I enjoy to sing along with the most while it's playing, uh, <laughs> Baby Got Back. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. I had to, I have... It's a fun song. Too much fun <laughs> singing that song whenever it comes on. Um... So I don't know that I would list it as my favorite, <laughs> like officially. Don't put that on Wikipedia if you make one for me. But uh, I really like sing along. Now. That one's fun to sing to as Kermit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, all every song from Hamilton. Yeah, that's I. Uh, yep, I was gonna say. <laughs> cool. All right. Our next question. Uh, Kiwi Nick asks: Was T Rex predominantly a scavenger or a hunter, and why? Yes. Yeah. Our next question. No, uh, <laughs> there is so any large carnivore is going to be a, both a scavenger and predator. Yeah, I don't know there that is, I can think of an example. There is no animal in the world today, no carnivorous animal in the world today, larger than a vulture. <laughs> that is a dedicated scavenger. Yes, and pr- most large carnivores will take a dead meal if they can get it. If they can steal it from somebody else. It's animals pretty much generally are inherently lazy. Like if they don't have to burn <clears throat> energy. Energy. It's expenditure. They're not going to bird feeders. And you know, if I can get it for free and without working. Yeah. I believe that there's also direct evidence for T-Rex in both regards. Yes. So there are healed T-Rex bite marks on prey animals, which suggests that they were bitten while still alive and got away. Mm-hmm. So a failed hunting attempt. Which isn't, I remember uh, making that point to somebody once and they said, well, doesn't that mean that it wasn't a hunter because it, it was bad at it? Like, no, no. Even in modern predators, you know, if, if you're going by most st- of the time they fail, if you're going by statistics, all predators are bad predators. Yes. Like, <laughs> the, like a 10%. The African hunting dogs are like the only thing that breaks above 50%. Uh, yeah. <laughs> African hunting dogs. That's it. And everything else is like way more often they fail. But then I also saw a talk by Dave Hone that was pointing out that there was some, at least one evidence, one, one, one fossil find that was a bone that looked like it was weathered and then scraped by T-Rex teeth. Interesting. Which was, which, which suggests the bone was exposed to the elements and then found by a Tyrannosaur and chewed on. Gross. So yes, it was a scavenger and a hunter, just like every large predator in the world today yeah i mean and, and if you're asking like but which one did it do more often it would depend by the situation like yeah who's cro- to say crocodiles it depends on the time of year you're talking about yeah. when there's lots of herds they hunt when there's not they eat whatever they can <laughs> so yes jonathan asks when is the next snakes versus crocs poll coming out i've been following you for a while now and haven't had my chance to vote I'd say a new year's coming up, so you know, I if if it's what the people want, twenty twenty rematch. I don't, I didn't, I never wanted it to become annoying. <laughs> yes, exactly. I don't want to over. 
over milk this this uh, shtick. Right. People, if you want another poll, let us know. We can give snakes a, a run at the belt, which I know isn't fair because you can't wear it, but... Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, we're going to have a belt made out of Crocs. <laughs> in the meantime, feel free to just send us your vote. Yes. Yeah. Just start sending it in. We'll tally it all up. <laughs> and we'll see what happens in 10 years. <laughs> Absolutely. We just need like a perpetual thing people can click. You know, just, just. Oh my goodness. Ding it. Just constant gauges. Maybe we'll put that on the website or something. That'd be cool. <laughs> all right. Jesse says, from what I remember of the fossilization process, a rapid burial is a main element. Wood burying an animal that we put down on the farm, especially with a high water table, give a better chance in them eventually fossilizing. Uh, also, for reference, I live in the mid-Atlantic state with sandy soil. Yes, probably. <laughs> so rapid burial is usually... Uh, very good for fossilization because it removes you from the elements. That's It's protecting you. Yeah. you you're not going to get scavenged or stepped on or eroded by wind and rain. A high water table is also probably good because a lot of the chemical changes mm -hmm. that are happening to a fossil are because of mineral deposition in groundwater. Yeah, the water allows the minerals to move around more freely and, and replace stuff. So that's probably the best you can do for your future fossil. It's not to say that the sediment won't be disturbed by something else or tectonically destroyed at some point. But yeah, uh, putting them in a place where they're not going to get damaged and where there's some water for chemical activity. Yeah, that's that's a good start. Because you are correct that being buried, you know, s sooner rather than later is one of the most critical parts. Unless you fossilize in a cave and then... Uh, and then same with <laughs> Good question. Let us know how it goes. Dylan asks, I am currently pursuing a degree in geology slash paleontology. Well done. What can individuals do other than going to school to break into the industry of paleontology or archaeology? Good question. Uh, there are many avenues. There are plenty of places where you can get jobs that are either parallel to or associated to you know, the the fields. Uh, museums are the most obvious answer. Now, getting uh, a dedicated job in the museum might be difficult because people tend to hold on to the jobs and they tend to be higher degreed. But volunteering, uh, start starting at the bottom. Yeah, getting know, to know the people. Getting to know the people. Uh, volunteering in labs is also another really great way. You know, w whether it's at a museum or whether it's on a university, most of those will take interns or volunteers or some, you know, maybe uh, employment that will let you actually get some hands-on experience. Yeah, volunteering at dig sites. You know, volunteering to go and dig, even if it's just for a month. You know, that's the first time I ever did it was for one month in the summer. I basically went on a mini vacation to gray and then yep. got into school. So dig sites, labs on the floor in the museum are all great sources. And any way you can make yourself part of the community Yes. Uh, online. So we mentioned that there, you know, there are Facebook groups, there are Twitter groups. The fossil project is a, meant to be an online community. So just familiarize yourself with the people 
get involved with what other fossil people are doing, museums, fossil clubs, online resources. And that's often the best way to do it is you're familiar with what people are doing. They're somewhat familiar with you. You have your foot's in the door right then and there. Absolutely. And if you can make contact with those people, ask them for help too. Yeah. Everybody could use a helping hand, especially if you're not already in a position where you have those opportunities. One of the best ways to get those opportunities is to find people who have them and ask them what they can do to help you out. And uh, local fossil groups again, because those often will have ties to the, the paleontology community. Uh, the fossil group down in Tampa, actually, the the heads of it worked with Blaine, my old advisor. Yep. Uh, so I knew him personally by name and had helped him find uh, or uh, dig up a bear that he published. So, yeah, just getting involved, getting your toes wet, and then trying to make those connections. Good question. Good question. Tom asks, if you hadn't been paleontologist, what careers would you have taken and why? I suspect I would have ended up in education anyway. Uh, if I hadn't have been doing paleontology in college, I probably would have been doing linguistics. Yeah, that I makes, love language. That I makes love perfect it sense. so much. And then I, again, probably would have ended up teaching linguistics or teaching language or something because education is where I want to be. Uh, for a short, a brief time, I had the intentions of going into acting because uh, I, I quite enjoyed it back in college. I was, mm -hmm. you know, in as many theater programs as I was able to be time-wise, and I really enjoyed it. But I agree with you. I think I probably would have ended up teaching regardless of what field I went into because of how much I enjoy it. Now, I, at some point, I would have stumbled across it. Yeah, it was destined to be. But uh, probably what I was doing at the aquarium, honestly, is I'd probably be dealing with living animals, not fossilized ones. And I'd yeah. just be much more a biologist. And we never would have met. Yeah. Yeah. So good thing for you all that we did. <laughs> <laughs> We're living in the good timeline. Josh asks, what's a good book to read about Mary Anning? Also, Josh adds, here's a request for a Mary Anning episode. All right. Noted goes on the list absolutely uh, i don't have any uh titles to suggest me neither but i know some people who do <laughs> so there's a website called mary anning's revenge which is uh, run by amy atwater and megan wetherill think right i hope that name's right <gasps> who are both awesome science communicators and on their website they list two books one is remarkable creatures a novel by tracy chevalier and Jurassic Mary, a biography by Patricia Pierce. Once again, Remarkable Creatures by Tracy Chevalier, and Jurassic Mary by Patricia Pierce, and you can find those on the website Mary Anning's Revenge, so which is a cool website. Those two ladies are super awesome. Not always safe for work. <laughs> the, lang they, they, the language is sometimes not kid friendly so <laughs> take a look at it before you send your kids there yes <laughs> all right cool uh mark now asks if you had complete control over the design and content of an exhibit in a grand old natural history museum what group of life or time period would you choose and why what would you wish for it to highlight? Uh, what species, taxon, specimens would you choose to exhibit? Well. You cannot pick crocs or snakes. Well. <laughs> All right. So, fine. 
Um, good question. So this is similar to the uh, documentary question, but this is an exhibit. This is like, an exhibit. Something immersive. Yes. You know, I I like the idea. You know, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna harken back to something you said. I would create an exhibit that reconstructs ecosystems at the time of evolutionary transitions. Yeah. So that you could be in an, an exhibit that is all right the late Devonian, and show that you had lobefin fish, and you had very tetrapod-like fish, mm-hmm. and you had very fish-like tetrapods, all living in the same ecosystem. Yes. Or you could do the late Cretaceous, mm-hmm. and it, or early Cretaceous, I guess, where it's you have proper early birds and very bird-like dinosaurs. Any one of those transitional ecosystems where... You can get across that idea of this is what, here is an ecosystem. It looks just like today, but if you look closely enough, you can see the evidence of where this transition happened. Well, and the reason I would like that for a museum exhibit as well is if we did like, um, you know, dioramas of like a reconstruction of the habitat with models or with paint, you know, whatever it is. You would be able to then show, here's what was going on in the water, here's what was going on on land, here was what what was going on in the climate. Like, here's the yeah. f- as full a picture as we can give you in this limited space of a building yeah. uh, to really fill in, you know, how were every, how was everything changing together? Not just that suddenly someone, one of them walked on land. Right. Everything was shifting continuously. I like that. That'd be cool. Next up, we have three people who all ask basically the same question, (laughs) which is, uh, so this is Tom, MJ, and Jesse all asked some variation on what has been the most exciting, the biggest, the most unexpected, or your favorite news topic from this year. Oh, no. There's been a lot. There's been a lot of good news. I don't know how many specific ones I remember. Yeah. I think this year was when they found the baby snake in Amber. Yeah. Which is real cool. Yeah. That's real big, exciting stuff. Hmm. I'm trying to remember if there was one thing that just like jumped out as being the thing that I was, was not expecting to report on in a news. <sighs> It's a good question, and the honest answer is that like we have done enough of them that it is tricky to just isolate, but also it's hard to rank them. There are different ones that are cool for different reasons or exciting for different reasons, and it's hard to really say which one I would say which one I would pick as the more exciting. Yeah, the the snake in amber is pretty awesome. Tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go to our the the news uh, document. Oh, that's an even better idea. Bring I, up the news document. I should have it. Let's look through our, our news. So we have a document where we collect news that catches our eye every week. And then when it comes time for the episode, we will pick a bit of news uh, uh, that, that we will discuss. All right. So we have what do we the, got on there? The tooth replacement in theropods last time. The stretch. Sure, sure. Yeah, the crocs, keep going. Find embryos. something cool. Anapithecus, early fossil evidence of pollination. pollination. Uh, that was a cool one. That was a very cool one. Earliest pollination. The, what were these? Bah. Sauropod air conditioning. That was fun. We Ooh, had the, a few of those. The trilobite line. Oh, yeah. The trilobite conga line was very fun. That's it's a Behavioral stuff in the fossil record is always cool. Absolutely. 
Uh, we had that weird water bear esque creature. Oh right, the pot, the slime pig or the mold pig. That, that one was, was exciting just because it was. That's one of those rare occurrences of. This is a new type of thing. Yes. Like, not just a new species, <laughs> not just a new genus. This is a new version Some, of life. Though? Something or other. Yeah. Uh, what else do we have? Sea snakes with the head lung. Oh, that's right. That was very cool. That one was very, very cool. Uh, a div- convergent uh, a sort of br- underwater breathing apparatus in sea snakes. This oh. year might have also been the, th- the the one with the four-eyed lizard. Was that this year where it had Ooh. two eyes on top of its head? Kind of like the, the pineal eye kind of thing. I don't remember, but that one was very cool. The also giant, something very unique. The giant uh, uh, human-sized penguin. Was oh, also yeah. This year. Those are always fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's got some other cool ones here. Let's see. The Oh, there was the one with um, evidence of breastfeeding in australopithecus or the australopithecus oh, right 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 uh there was also some denisovan news this year there was i have i know there, i think there was a it. study that looked at um found more variety in denisovans than expected that there were there were at least three different branches of denisovans that they might even be multiple species which is really exciting to see yeah we definitely got a, a couple of there's the denisovan jaw yep 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 Oh boy, it's been a good year. Oh, there was the uh, uh, Ambopteryx, the the new bat-winged dinosaur. Oh right, another one. Another weird. Oh, a new one. And then, and there was that first known Denisovan skull piece. That's right. There, there was we that go. Too. So cool. We've, we've so got, those. We've got those. some good ones. Yeah, <laughs> those are the ones that jumped out as scrolling. Yeah. What were your favorite news bits of the year, listeners? Absolutely. Let us know. <laughs> you, you might remember them better than we did. Yeah. <laughs> we talk about a lot of news. Yep. And it's and it's uh, at the very beginning of the episode. And so by the <laughs> end of the episode, I have often forgot which news it was this episode versus the previous one. <laughs> cool, cool. All right. Brett, how do you go about researching topics for episodes? What sources do you normally use... And methods of gathering information. I imagine it can be difficult at times. It can be. Absolutely. Um, usually what I will do is I will plug some keywords into Google Scholar and see if there are recent papers that pop up. And I will look it up on Wikipedia and check the references to see if there are papers that Wikipedia is, is using. And then if I can find recent papers that... Hopefully I can find some that go give me a little bit of an overview of the topic that I can then dive into, either look at the references they're talking about, or if they mention topics within the big topic that I hadn't thought of, I can go do the same basic process for them. But generally I want to find a collection of scientific papers and or reputable resources, like university web pages Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. things like that. That can give me some good overview. A review paper is always the best thing to find. Like if you could find a paper that's like, and here's what we know of whale evolution as of 2010. That's fantastic. Because there it all is. It's all all collected there. Some episodes are harder than others. Um, I just finished doing the research for tetrapods. Uh, uh, the transition from fish to tetrapods, which wasn't too bad because there are some good review papers. Other times it can be a real challenge. 
like uh, the the uh, the Great Oxidation event. There's a lot about it, but it's also a lot of chemistry stuff. Technical. And there's not a lot of sort of general public accessible information about it. It's mostly technical papers, which is difficult on the one hand because a lot of it is technical stuff that I'm not super familiar with, so I have to do more reading. And also means there's less to link people to in the blog. Because I try not to link. It's like, here's a 30-page chemistry paper. Yeah, well, have fun. That's not going to be helpful for a lot of people. But that's the general, you know, go scour in places that use references and then look through those references. That's, I, that's basically the same for me. I also use a lot of the same sites we use to look for news articles. You know, mm-hmm. reputable news sites will often have cool coverage of good you know weird or recent examples of whatever the topic is yeah so yes jay asks what is your favorite evolutionary anachronism also why haven't you done an episode on amphibians yet it's on the list it'll happen <laughs> yep it's on the list we, we work <laughs> no offense list. no offense to the amphibian uh, people. Uh, if you want an amphibians episode add names to the list because we we tend to pick topics uh based on density of requests i believe jay has actually made this request at least three times <laughs> and you're on the list three times yes <laughs> so it'll happen we just as when this re- releases we will have released our early tetrapods episode mm-hmm. so there'll be some amphibian talk in there absolutely evolutionary uh, anachronism anachronism so anachronisms are uh the concept of features or uh aspects of an environment or an organism that we see that don't seem to have a modern purpose but had a purpose for another extinct organism or an extinct environment uh so right something that is a anachronism is means out of time yeah it's a holdover is kind of a way to think of it like if you know when when you see something in a movie that is that they didn't have sunglasses like yeah that's at the wrong time Mm -hmm. so an evolutionary anachrony is something that doesn't like those megafaunal fruits i was about to say we've already talked about it a little bit with the megafaunal fruits avocados are a great example of a plant that doesn't really fit the ecosystem today that it's found in because there's not the animals to eat it yeah it's an evolutionary anachronism it it is kind it has gone past the time it was ideal for yeah the other famous example is the pronghorn yes the pronghorn's probably my favorite just because it is such a weird animal so pronghorns uh are these herding herbivores out in the the midwest the plains of north america they look very antelope like but they're not true antelopes you know they're not in the same group but they are the best long high speed long distance runners you know they're real fast they're super fast they're not necessarily the fastest animal but they are the animal that can run at top speed the longest of any fast running animal on earth so they can hit these really high speeds and then maintain that speed for a long distance and out in the plains they are running from nothing nothing Nothing. there's no (laughs) fast predators out there to keep up with and chase these ridiculously fast pronghorns and the answer to that has been well there's not any more right they used to have cheetahs the american cheetah (laughs) would have been a, a, a a definite predator for them back when it was alive so those are some fun examples yes the classics i that yeah. i love pronghorns they're so weird and cool <laughs> all right michael 
asks us, what extinct animal or group of animals do you think would be ideal for domestication by humans and why? Ah, uh, you know, so an extinct group that we that we didn't domesticate. Yes. That would have been good for domestication. I bet there were a bunch of early mammals. Because I'm trying to think of what things we have domesticated. Yes. Like, I'm sure there were a bunch of early dog-like things. Oh, yeah. Like the, like, like, Oreodont-type stuff. Like, you know, like early sheep and goat and dog-like things. Yeah, that that's an interesting question. Now, if we're going outside of things we had a chance to, you know, things mm-hmm. that we could have but didn't, uh, I think Ceratopsians yeah. would be right. Maybe not the big ones, because I'd assume they'd have a lot of the same issues elephants have. Like, they're probably not pumping out babies you know, regularly enough to easily, but Protoceratops? Yeah, maybe. Little, little, little workhorses, little workhorses, <laughs> little, uh, Ceratopsian, uh, animals would probably be fairly, cause they, yeah. they seem to have been social. They had babies fairly quickly. You know, if they were, you know, at all personable, which I don't know, things always <laughs> uh, portray Protoceratops as feisty and, you know, ill-tempered, but it's really only basing it off of the fighting dinosaurs. Yeah, I don't know that we have any other evidence that they were (laughs) ill-tempered. Yeah, and I'm tempted to say if there were, like, group pack-living theropods. Yes. Properly pack-hunting, that might have been a a possibility. Mm -hmm. You would have gotten something very wolf-like. Yeah, that would be cool. Cool. Ground sloths. (laughs) Uh, Ground sloths. (laughs) Oh, I wonder what ground sloth meat would taste like when we domesticate them (laughs) for food. Joe notes that he was disappointed in our Western Interior Seaway episode that we didn't mention two of the the most impressive fish, Bonarichthys and Protosferana, and wants us to give them a mention. Bonarichthys and Protosferana were two of the most impressive fish in the Western Interior Seaway. I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah, no, they're pretty cool. Yes. Uh, Protosferana was a <laughs> swordfish-like fish. Yes. Uh, not... Like a swordfish today, but convergent with swordfish. Cool. Which is cool. And then Bonarichthys, I think, was just big. Like, I feel like a, a... 20 feet, like, big shark-sized. So, there you go, Joe. Sorry to leave out your favorite fish. Very cool. All right, uh, Jenna the Destroyer... <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Jenna. ...says, if you had to pick one prehistoric animal of any type to be a reasonable opponent for the other to fight... What would you pick? So, Will pick something for David to fight and vice versa. Hmm. Good question. What do I want Will to fight? Now, when you say reasonable, do you mean like I want David to be able to win? or Right, a yeah. reasonable opponent or like a fitting opponent. Yeah, like one that... it'd be real cool to put you up against Gigantopithecus. <gasps> yes. Right? Yes. And watch you try to like, maybe like a little one. Yeah. Because they're very orangutan-like mm-hmm. and that would be very fitting. Oh, I do like that. Yeah, I'll find you a, a Gigantopithecus in your weight class. Yes, there we go. That's a, like a juvenile Gigantopithecus. Getting you to have to wrangle uh, one of the Australian snakes, one of the... Oh, the Matsoids? Yeah, the Matsoids. Yeah, it's hmm. like, you had, you, you know, it's like trying to handle a boa, you know, yeah, which yeah. is its own fight in and of itself. <laughs> uh, there Ooh. you go. Get that All back right. in its enclosure. <laughs> okay. Cool. There you go, Jenna. Make us some art. <laughs> yes, that that is that is the deal here. Mike asks, 
what was the diameter of a giant orthocone? So these are the big straight-shelled nautiloids, uh, cephalopods from the uh, Paleocene. I always see a length comparison, but you never hear about a diameter. For many fossils, you get a decent idea, for, but not at least for the orthos. I actually did look this up. Thank you, because I don't have the numbers right off. Uh, you know, I, I had to have been forced. I probably could have guessed something. But... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so the biggest straight-shelled nautiloids, the orthocones and, and their relatives, are often estimated reliably at being up to three meters long. And then there are some that are known from incomplete remains that are estimated to have maybe been as much as six meters long. And then there you'll hear estimates elsewhere of like 10 meters, but I don't know where those are coming from. Yeah. In papers, I've seen six meters. So yeah, saltwater crocodile again. And I did find some papers that reference diameters of these. So length across the shell and the biggest numbers that I routinely saw were up to about one meter. Which is so three feet. Yeah, that's that's a wide, so a big <laughs> diameter uh, for a cephalopod shell. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> Very cool. Melissa asks, fast forward millions of years, long after our own extinction. I like the questions that paint a picture. Yeah. And imagine the future paleontologist of whatever species replaces us. Good question. Uh, so this is a this is a concept that's posed very often. Is what do we think future archaeologists or future paleontologists will find? Uh, what do we think, you know, the the future civilization will be, con- you know, will consist of after humans? Which is interesting uh, for a couple reasons. Because one, there's so many options of right. what, if, if we're assuming something takes a place of a civilized, highly scientific, highly, right. you know, cognitive species... The options are vast. Let's make it easy and just assume it's cephalopods. Yes. Yeah. That's, which is always one of my... Octopodian paleontologists. One of my top votes. Uh, What would they find? Arguably, they would find the beginning of the Anthropocene. Yes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) They would probably, they would probably be the ones that actually name it. Uh, They would be so confused. This is why, this is why my argument is you would look at this incredible fossil record mm -hmm. where everything makes sense and different organisms are only found in certain parts of the world, and then you would hit the modern time, and everything would suddenly be mixed. Yeah. Uh, Plants and insects and other animals would just suddenly start appearing in the wrong places everywhere. We have mixed and matched ecosystems from all over the world, and it's so confusing. What this would probably have to give rise to is that this, this race of cephalopodian uh cephalopalians <laughs> cephalopalians <laughs> uh scientists probably wouldn't be able to be just paleontologists paleoarchaeology you know not for them would have to yeah but like uh <laughs> well culture you're, yeah, you're studying culture exactly like paleosociology i guess yeah. uh is it would have to be something where you're not just studying the fossil progression but you're having to study at what points did this ancient civilization reach different things and how was it affecting right the world around it and like it's it's weird we see this dramatic climate shift but we can't find evidence of asteroid impact or major volcanic eruptions what was going on yeah and they'd have to eventually come to the conclusion of what a a steam engine is yeah <laughs> it, it would be so confusing Whew. now there's also the 
the question that I always ask is, um, if there was a race to come after us, would it be only after we've gone extinct or well, planet of the apes style? Yeah, like, you know, or would it be part of the reason we went extinct? Like, you know, or maybe something, they'd already know, you know, like we have evidence of like, no, no, there's cave paintings of this, these extinct animals. Cause we were there for part of it. So yeah, we get an, you know, would there be some of that? Would there ain't their most ancient artifacts, the most ancient stories, like, tell no, no, we know us. that there were these weird bipedal things were the ones living in the cities because we have undersea art. <laughs> our ancestors observed them before they went extinct oh boy <laughs> very cool all right cheryl our friend cheryl hi cheryl says since common ascent is finishing its third year of podcasts i'd like to know two things okay we'll we'll allow it, we'll cheryl. allow it we like cheryl one looking back to when you published your first podcast what has been the most unexpected thing event people learning curve etc that you didn't anticipate happening. In other words, what has surprised you? Aside, is publishing the correct term for a podcast? Yes. Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. And two, what has been your favorite thing about working on the podcast? What has surprised us and what has been our favorite thing? My favorite thing is learning new things and interacting with people. Like the response from the audience has been so cool. We just went through 86 questions <laughs> submitted, and some of them were grouped. Like, this is incredible. This The amount of interaction we've gotten from people. We go to Dragon Con and people come up to us and say hi. We get contacted every now and then from people who are like, would you like to do this as science communicators? And it's just so cool to see people... Cheryl is an, a great mm -hmm. example of someone who has gotten in touch with us and then taken, you know, whatever inspiration uh, she's needed from us and then gone off and continued doing your own uh, science education and stuff. So I think the thing that I've liked the most has been that sort of connecting with the community. And the thing that has surprised me the most is how much we've been able to connect with the community. I'd agree. No, I, I'd say the community is definitely my favorite part as well. And I am always a little surprised. It's it's that imposter syndrome again, really. Oh, yeah. I'm always a little surprised when people, like, when people are excited, you know, like, to talk to us or to interact. And it's like, honestly, I'm like it's just will and david it's just like, us it's just yeah, it's us just me. I don't... <laughs> it's... people will come up to us and it I, I going back to that question from way back which was q's question maybe somebody's question of what uh, you know how do you feel do you feel daunted mm -hmm. oh man every time somebody comes up to us um, this is it. They're going to ask a question that I don't know the answer yeah, to. Yeah, Because I have this podcast where we talk about everything in paleontology and I don't know everything in paleontology. It's one of the reasons make a, a distinct effort to make it clear. I don't, I don't know horses. Right. <laughs> I had to learn. I learned everything I told you about horses in that episode and everything I didn't tell you, I still don't know. Like, And it's... It's just so much fun mm -hmm. to meet people, to see how people are, are getting excited about the stuff we're talking about, to meet other people in our own community, like other educators, other paleontologists. Yes. We've made some real cool friends. We have. 
learning how to be science communicators this past year at NAPC was, you know, we met, we had a whole little group powwow with a bunch of science, online science communicators. A really good, uh, a, a nice, like, think tank about yeah. it. Yeah, it was, it was just so much fun. It's, it's been a very cool social endeavor. Yes. And it's, I get, I, one of the things that I is, would also be one of my favorites and surprise me is how often people get what we're going for. Like there have been times we've gotten reviews or comments and people have almost word for word said what we said we were trying to do. Like, like yeah, from I, the beginning. yeah, like I like that you're able to do it this way. It's like, that's, yeah, that's what we wrote down as our got goal. Yeah. <laughs> so success. I so, guess. so success. And also thank you. <laughs> thank you for, for commenting that. Yeah. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a cool nearly three years. Also fan art. Yeah. Oh my goodness. It's so exciting. Every time I, I we have a, just, and I don't know if we've ever mentioned this. We have a bulletin board downstairs. Yes. Uh, in the apartment where I, what, the fan art I can fit on it. Uh, <laughs> put up a lot of the fan art, so it's in in the living room at all times. Oh, it's so great! Someday we'll put a little album together and share it. If there only there is so. a, we need to find like some kind of app or something that lets you share images. Yeah, uh, maybe so, someone will make one. Listeners, please keep letting us know how you feel. <laughs> yes, tell us what you want to hear. Cheryl, thank you for asking those questions and keep being awesome. Yes, share. Hey, everybody. Official request. Cheryl's pretty awesome. Cheryl's doing some great stuff. (laughs) Let's take it home. We have two more questions on this incredibly extensive. I knew this was going to be the longest thing we'd ever recorded. Yes. And Ian asks, what are your favorite non-science subjects? Non-science subjects. Non-science subjects. That's a really good question. As far as things where I've gotten to... Yeah, I unfortunately most of my electives during school were science. Right. Uh, so I have lots of non my science subjects like physics, law, physics. But non science, I really enjoyed things that were like ethics and those more cerebral topics of like you know more discussion based more. Analyzing the concept of a topic more right. than philosophical. Philosophical. I didn't get to take philosophy, unfortunately. But me neither. Uh, and I, it's a real shame. We will have to find a place to audit it. Yeah, maybe this be, university across the street. Yeah, that would actually be a lot of fun to audit something together. <laughs> yeah, uh, it would. It would be a lot of fun. I like those a lot. Uh, I've had some of my favorite classes are actually topics I'm not big on. Like I had a really great language arts class, but that's not actually my typical right. favorite topic. See, I would purport for Will. That even outside of the academic range, film, yeah, and that's cinema, true. yes, film and yeah. cinema are definitely, as is evidenced. Yeah, we like our pop culture, nerdy media stuff. Yeah, I would academically. I took. I don't think I had a single semester in college, except maybe toward the very end. That I didn't take at least one language class. That's was gonna be my bet. <laughs> I studied three different languages in, as an undergrad. It's been so I've totally fallen out of it. Yes, and I want to get back into it, but I've been saying that for years. That's a that's one of the biggest. If you don't use it, you lose it skills. Yep. And but I man, I love learning different languages and the linguistics and and comparing 
languages from around the world and and where the the there's overlap and what things are similar and meeting people from mm-hmm. I, my one of my favorite things about studying foreign languages is that i then got to meet people yeah and so when i was an undergrad i had friends from all over the world like i in 2012 i got to take a research trip to china and i was planning my research trip and i was like all right i i am going to visit these three people yes as i travel around china because yeah i had a, i was going to go to nanjing and guizhou and i'm going to go to hong kong because i have friends there <laughs> and it's just it's just so much fun so someday i'll find a language community again yeah get back into it ah uh, ah uh, the wistful <laughs> we have one one more question last question from joel which i think actually funnily enough even though we randomized it was also the last question we got Ooh, yeah how about cool. that yeah well joe asks what is your favorite example of a phylogenetically isolated species a species that is the last survivor of its clade Ooh, so a so a phylogenetically isolated the last species of its clade i mean the platypus is pretty cool platypus Ginkgo biloba is pretty awesome. <laughs> yes, it is. The last of the ginkgos, like from the Cretaceous. Yeah, there's more than one species of Tuatara in there. It depends on who you ask, actually. Right. I'll, I'll allow it. Right. Tuatara is a great answer. Tuatara, Tuatara has always been on, high on my list of favorites of the oh, so oft-forgotten cool. group of reptiles. Yep, the not lizard. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's a real good answer. I like Tuatara a lot. They're so cool. Cool. Also, I think there's only one group, one species of Acrocordus, the elephant trunk snake, the file snake. That's, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it's just the one. And they're so weird. They're, they're so wrinkly. Weird. Like, they're so cool. We had, um, I remember there was a leak issue at the museum at one point, and the crew, you know, the staff brought out those, this like leak kit. Yeah. And one of the things in it is this long tube shaped gray thing that is meant to be all absorbent and you can like wrap it around the leak area and yeah. it'll absorb the water. Looks like a file snake. <laughs> I love them because they look like if you asked <laughs> if you asked a cartoonist to draw an old snake. Yes. <laughs> draw us an ancient a really elderly snake. Well, you're not allowed to look up references. Yeah. <laughs> Just draw us what you think an old snake would look like. And it, yeah, it would look like a elephant trunk snake. Uh, pangolins, probably. Because mm. it's in its own order? Mm. I think so. So, so uh, yeah, pangolin. And I'm sure there's a bunch of invertebrates that I don't even know. Yeah. Yeah. So those are fun. Good question. Good question, Joel. And wow. last question, yeah. We did it. <sighs> Listeners, I hope that you have listened. Yes. And I hope that you enjoyed it. We used to joke what would happen if we just turned on the microphone and just went. Yeah. <laughs> and But this was super fun. Uh, hopefully we have managed to keep the energy up and it, we don't sound super tired. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll have to work an intermission in for bathroom breaks. <laughs> you know, we might. It's not a bad idea. Maybe we'll go back and we'll put one in in between. Come on down to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby <laughs> to get ourselves a treat. Oh, man. Thank you, everybody, so much for being with us, whether you have been listening for a month or for all three years. Yes. We are having a grand old time. This, uh, as long as this Q&A 
is now. Now we know how long it is. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we didn't know at the beginning. Now we do. As long as this is, it is it's so much fun and like to to be as sappy as I can. It's just it really it's touching that there was this much people wanted to know. Like oh, yeah. that this many people decided to chime in. Wow. Like legitimately wow. Yeah. I like we said our favorite part is this is the interaction. Yes. And the podcast was built to function on the interaction. We haven't done a not listener requested episode in over two years now. Yeah. Because that it's just become so cool that our podcast is driven by what our listeners want to hear. Even though we haven't done an Amphibians episode, Jay, I apologize. It'll happen. <laughs> you know, and, and, and people, I, you know, the feedback we get for our wacky side stuff, like people love spooky oh and they gosh. love the silver screen science stuff. It's like our... our people like our babies (laughs) and it's we're we're so excited when we hear from people we are beyond astonished that we have as many patrons as we do willing to donate to us and and further this cause just amazing we have a bunch of cool stuff coming up in 2020 yes we've been making plans we've been talking about stuff talking to people getting getting some hopefully cool things lined up and we will be asking you what you want, as always. Uh, there's going to be some changes in 2020. Um, for example, before the end of 2020, we will hit triple digits. Yes, we will. Episode 100 will happen next year. Unless something wacky goes wrong. <laughs> if we stay to the same schedule, yeah. which we've done for if... three years. Cheryl was asking what's the most surprising thing. Yeah. <laughs> we managed to stay on the same schedule yep. for three years. So unless something wacky happens... if. 2020 ends early then maybe not right uh, wait who knows who's to say I don't know. huh well after talking for four hours that might not be how long the actual episode is gonna end no up but right now but we've been sitting here for four hours our recording is bumping up against that all right 2020 here we come 2019 has been a ton of fun let's do even better cooler greater stuff next year as always we release episodes every fortnight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Episode 78 is going to kick off 2020 for us. Let us know what you want to hear. Keep up with us. Make art. Ask questions. Build a community on Facebook and on Twitter and talk to each other. It's awesome. You're all awesome. It's been tons of fun. Let's keep having a, a, an amazing time. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.